This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast for all your new favorite horror media, sci-fi media, alien media, and you know, all that good shit in between because we all love that stuff here. My name's Doug, and with me today is my esteemed colleague, co-host, well, he's the main guy, but I'm taking over this operation because you know what they say, nice planet, we'll take it, Jake. Say hello to the mutant goons from beyond Mars. How's it going, buddy? I'm excited to give over the reins to you because I don't know anybody who loves Mars attacks as much as you and myself. Uh, you're even you have Mars attacks across your titties right now, which is great. That's an awesome shirt. I do. Yeah. Well, let me pan down for you Patreon viewers here. So it's it's like a Mars attacks arcade video game, Oof. which I really wish they made. It's like oh, your city is destroyed. Game over. Oh, man. But yeah, the, the love for this movie. It's funny. Uh, the car broke down this morning, so I had to go take oh. that into the. Yeah, the tire blew out on the 605. I'm thinking it's one of those highway shooters again, like as you've been hearing about. But Oh, uh, God, yeah. Yeah, because there's no cameras on that freeway. But needless to say, I wore this shirt and uh, three people were like, oh, my God, I love that movie. I remember that movie. They came out in the in the 80s, right? I'm like, no, fucker. It came out in the 90s, 96. They're like, oh, yeah. that's a great movie. So, you know, we, we've got some sort of mutual thing here. And I feel like that's what Mars Attacks is. Uh, a lot of people forgot about it until they see like an image of it they're like oh i remember that movie so you know it's it's running the nostalgic juices in their head that this is a great fucking movie and everyone remembers it and people shit on it uh, at the time they're like oh tim burton's reached movie but this is just a fun fun movie and most people remember it and uh that's all i asked for really yeah what's great about the movie is it's a series of basically vignettes and set pieces right and that's what so mars attacks for those of you who don't know the uninitiated mars attacks is a card series it was a bunch of like little individual trading cards Uh, the if you're on the patreon patrons and you get to see the video behind me the first card is the invasion begins and you could look at all of them there's a great uh you know galleries online that show all of them uh there was also a companion one called dinosaurs attack And so a lot of people think that it was a comic book series first. While it was created by comic book writers and artists, most notably Wally Wood, it was actually cards. So the fact that the movie's narrative is relatively weak and it's very segmented is like incredibly true to form to the point where you're like, holy shit, is this brilliant? Oh, yeah. And another great thing, too, is that this movie is star studded, but each character, I mean, Jack Nicholson plays two fucking parts. So that's that's like telling you it's like, obviously, and this is right after Ed Wood. So Tim Burton was trying to channel that inner Ed Wood, like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But honestly, this came out the same year as Independence Day. I like this more than Independence Day because it's campy. Yeah, it's schlocky. It's fun. And uh, the the Martians are just dicks. There's no reason for them to do it, just being dicks. Well, and what's great about the Martians, too, they have moments of true menace and they have moments of just absolute hilarity where, like, I like the aliens from Independence Day. I think they're quite interesting. When you take it out of its, like, exoskeleton, it's a little bit weak. And so that was almost a letdown, whereas these guys, like, even when they're in their, like, little spangly briefs are still kind of, like, creepy looking. But I mean, both I think they make a very compelling like double feature, if I'm honest, because like just the Brent Spinner data for those of you from Star Trek Next Generation, just the scene where he gets like possessed is such a sexy and amazing scene. I'll watch that whole movie for that. But in the sum of its parts, Mars Attacks kicks that movie's ass hard. Yeah. And and what's crazy, too, is that Mars Attacks is kind of a weird I'd hate to say it, but it's like. It's it's like one of Tim Burton's last movies before he started going into going into like full CGI, kind of like rebooting everything. I mean, he did Batman and stuff before this, but he really didn't he didn't become the Disney horror that he is now. You know what I mean? Uh, 
before this. And this was like the last fun movie, because honestly, here's the here's the crazy thing. This came out in 96. A lot of my friends and my siblings, when we watched this, we were afraid of it. It kind of it freaked us out. So, you know, yeah. in, in a way. And now I see it as more fun. And, and and as a kid, I didn't pick up on a lot of the comedy. I picked up on like, oh, my God, these they're going to fry you and you're going to turn into a red or green skeleton. That was terrifying. One of the really weird things that a lot of people kind of lose when they're talking about Tim Burton. Modernly, we get it. He's just he's he is so, I guess, creatively bankrupt. He's even remaking himself. You know, he redid Frank and Weenie. But if you look at his discography or filmography, rather, the only like original movies we're dealing with are Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. I guess arguably Ed Wood. But Pee-wee's Big Adventure, that was already an existing IP. Batman, existing IP. Sleepy Hollow, existing. Planet of the Apes, Big Fish is based on a book. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is based on a book. I guess Corpse Bride is, is unique. And then you have Sweeney Todd is a longstanding play. Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows. So like so much of what he's done has been an adaptation of other stuff. And I think none better then this film, when you think about the source material, again, going to like the very choppy and fragmented idea of it, because he where he excels is visual storytelling. Like he's almost kind of like George Lucas in the sense of like, who gives a shit about the acting? Let's just move to the visual. Right. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, here's another thing, too. It's like how like we did Super Mario Brothers. Like, how are you going to make a movie based on cards that came with bubble gum you know what i mean it's like it's like yeah well garbage pail kids did it and you know i i like that movie for what it is but a lot of people are like oh that's a failure it's like what the but see they didn't know how to do garbage pail kids because they had a kid that was a seamstress he was like working on clothes i'm like that has nothing to do with garbage pail kids this movie just hits it right on the head it's it's honestly it's i can imagine buying those cards and just looking at it. it's like oh which one am i gonna get am i gonna get the one where they fry the dog and i get the one yeah. where they're sh- you know enlarging the ants that's kind of how this one was and like i said it scared me as a kid but i love it to this day and um it's funny because like when this came out one of my favorite pinball machines came out was uh attack for mars which was kind of based off this but i used to love that uh, pinball machine and uh, the alien it's kind of a ripoff of mars attacks but I ended up buying it for the PlayStation Four, like the uh, the Sterling Pinball uh, collection. Okay, and yeah, it's on there. So if if you like Mars Attacks, there's a pinball game called Attack from Mars. That is that same. Wow, it even has like a brainy Martian. Oh yeah, the aliens teeth. talk. Yeah, and if you get like your uh, if you get the three balls in the spot, like on one on you know, as long as you don't lose a ball, they all start shaking and going crazy, and then you got to basically stop them from destroying like the Capitol and then the Pentagon and all that. You know, I'm a big pinball guy. Have I told you that like what I view as like penultimate wealth is like having a pinball machine in your house? Dude, that's the same way I feel, too. Yeah. Um, hey, hey, I'm trying to convert the garage. Once all this conversion is done downstairs, I want to try to convert the garage into like an old video store because I have a bunch of tapes and they're just like the rare stuff. I have some really rare stuff and they're just sitting here collecting dust. I'm like, I want to display them kind of like how they did at the slashback video in yeah. uh, Burbank. And uh, yeah, get a, I want to get a pinball machine game because there's that one. And then there's a Tales from the Crypt pinball machine that I really mm. loved. So, yeah, when, when you uh, when you get it, I remember you could chainsaw the Crypt Keeper's tongue off. I'm like, man, they don't make stuff like this anymore. It's crazy. Yeah, actually, yeah. I found a Dracula vintage pinball machine on OfferUp and it was twenty five hundred bucks. Right. And I looked, go to my wife and I'm like, hey, you know, what do you think about this? It was a ruse. Because I just bought her like a $3,000 bracelet for her, our anniversary, right? Uh-huh. And so I was just checking to see how practical she was. She said, well, if we had more room in the house, I would very much encourage you to get it. I was like, okay, 
I'll accept that. But I was expecting her to be like, that's a waste of money because I was going to be like, well, guess what, toots? So is that bangly wrist gauntlet. But she was actually, see, this is why she's perfect for me. She's cool. She's a cool cat. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you could always make room like in your living room. It's like, let's just move some of these toys out of the way and let's just stick it right there. You know, the kids will grow up and they'll want to play pinball, too, I'm sure. I hope. One of my all time favorite Super Nintendo games is Battle Pinball. If you ever get a chance, you get to play as Gundam and Kamen Rider and, and Ultraman. It's delightful. Really? Well, I'll have to play that next time because I haven't uh, I haven't played that one. You have a copy of that on your pocket Neo or? Yeah, boy, I have it on this laptop that I'm recording with. I have it on two emulators and then I have it. Oh, I have it backed up like on a flash drive because I just, you know, it's a great you doesn't even need a patch for English. You just don't even care. You're like, okay, whatever. I could just play this in Japanese because there's no narrative, really. It's just cute. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of which, you hear them jacking off downstairs. That's my neighbor. <laughs> they got a new dildo. I can't you know hear I mean? it at all. Oh, at least it sounds like farts like last time. Uh, well, I blame myself on that. I was like, you know, you want to know what? That fart was purposeful. I want to say, hey, you know what? All you Super Mario Brothers haters, take a whiff of this. Yeah. Uh, Smell my go. fingers. Take a whiff of that. Yeah. But, but hey, we're going off keister here. We got Mars attacks to talk about. <laughs> okay. Most of you guys have probably seen Mars attacks or remember it mostly. And it's it's kind of easy to break down the story on this one because, like Jake said, it is fragmented into segments. And uh, each segment is kind of with a, with a different huge A-list celebrity, which honestly, in my opinion, I, I'd love this movie if the A-listers weren't in this. I just think it makes it funny that they are in this because it's like yeah. the ultimate troll movie. It, it's a lot want. like a Muppet movie, right? Yeah. I mean, Muppet movies are very much like little vignettes that kind of come together to a large overarching narrative. And then you have, you know, the cameos throughout. And so when I'm watching this, I was like, maybe that's one of the reasons I love this so much as a kid, because I was so obsessed with Muppets and obviously puppetry and stuff. Do you think you would like this more if it had been the stop motion that uh, that tim burton had originally envisioned you know when i saw that i'm like the stop motion would have been really awesome because i imagine it looking like the the statues from beetlejuice moving around but here's the thing it holds up surprisingly well i watched this on blu-ray i'm like it looks it looks good it looks fine like i can't complain yeah well like when they're doing their laughing movements and they're doing the speech with um uh, uh i'm trying to remember the actor's name the one who did is like oh i'm gonna <laughs> we'll get into that too the the humor in this is another thing oh, when you're yeah. an adult you pick it up. I'm like, oh, I, I get it now. But yeah, it's just the humor, the uh, or the animation, like really mixes in well with like the human counterparts. Like, honestly, like they did a good job. And this was Tim Burton's first kind of foray into uh, CGI. Yeah. So. He had to be convinced because when ILM did their test footage, it cost I think seventy seventy million or something like that. But the stop motion would have cost a hundred million dollars. But they had already worked on it for eight fucking months. So you can find pictures of the armatures and stuff online, and they look great. But truly, this is one of the be- like, you know, we talked about it on the eight legged freaks episode so many years ago. But like when you see like good, well done CG, like it's great. Like, sure, I can tell it's not real, but it's amazing for what it is. And then you add the caveat that it's 1996. Jesus Christ, dude, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. And it still holds up really well. That's why I'm hoping like Warner Brothers releases a 4K version of this because, uh, you know, just imagine their laser beams going off all that HDR color, like kind of oozing off the screen. I'm like, man, that, that would look great. The Blu-ray looks great, but I can only imagine what it would look like with with proper HDR implemented into it. But um, yeah, so there's that. And then uh, another thing that holds up, too, is like the special effects. Like, I mean, granted, it's, you know, for, for the movie that it is. This movie is probably one of the most destructive movies I've seen with aliens. 
in my opinion. I love seeing people getting turned into skeletons. So, and that was kind of a throwback to another movie I liked as a kid. My grandma used to, or used to play on public access TV all the time. Um, For all you Midwesterners out there, if you're familiar with the son of ghoul, he was a horror host. He's still on today and he's still, he still shoots new episodes and it looks like it's all fucking shot on tape. Crazy. He has. Yeah. And he used to play teenagers from outer space all the time. And that's a movie where the people get turned into skeletons, but after getting zapped. So, you know, that was, uh, I think that was some, well, I mean, in the cards, that was kind of the inspiration too, but seeing the cards, they also had the enlarger Ray, which enlarged the bugs to kind of go in and like huge spiders and huge beetles ripping people apart. The, the cards were really fucking graphic. So it, it's kind of sad that they didn't make the movie as graphic, but it works in its favor because it, it's a dark comedy. And, you know, granted that people getting turned into skeletons is not as gory, but it's just it's just done well. I mean, you get some severed hands in there. You get a severed head. What's well, arguably more graphic, but also it's comedic enough to where you get a pass. So like a kid can watch this without being like overly grotesque, where when you realize you're being vaporized to all the flesh is being flayed from your bones. One cute thing I read was that Tim Burton was very aware this film would be coming out in December. So that's why the skeletons are either green or red, quite literally as <laughs> an homage to Christmas. And I was like, wow, this dude's perception of Christmas is a little skewed with nightmare and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, if you watch Beetlejuice, uh, the green and red skeletons are in Beetlejuice. Yeah. So they're like in the waiting room area. So, hey, you know, they're maybe they're in the same universe. After these people get fried, they have to go to Juno's waiting room, you know, for the recently deceased. Oh, God damn it. That movie's so good. One thing I wanted to touch on, I was looking over the rest of the films that came out in 96, and there's like nothing that's anywhere even close to ambitious when it comes to visual effects that is comparable. Like movies like Escape from L.A. came out in 96, but we watch that movie and fucking laugh our asses off today because have it's you, Have so you seen bad. Escape from L.A. recently? It is so ungodly fucking terrible. It makes me mad. When he's flying mad. on that parasail, I'm like, ooh, this is what well, he's <laughs> surfing. Dude, the oh, surfing, surfing is yeah. the worst thing I've ever seen. So like not like if you add the caveat of like for the time, Jesus Christ, the effects on this are great. I guess the closest would be Dragonheart. I'm looking over here, maybe. And even that looks pretty jank by modern standards. Yeah. But see this one here, like like it just holds up like, the explosions, the 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 sound effects, which the other thing, too, like that, that Ray Frygun sound effect is like seeped into my memory as a kid. Like anytime I hear it, it's like. You get that same sound. I wish I could play it on here, but uh, they wanted the War of the Worlds sound effect, but then Paramount wouldn't lease it to them. So they had to kind of improv and make their own. Well, this is this is just fine for me because, you know, people that grew up millennials our age and stuff like that, they're like, oh, as soon as you hear that sounds like, oh, that's Mars attacks. That's yep. the ray guns. So, yeah, it's just uh, it's great. And the thing is, there was I'm smacking myself. Well, I was a kid at the time, but I remember when this movie came out. We rented it on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. I uh, We rented it from Blockbuster. And then we went to Toys R Us. And uh, they had a Martian figure. And I've looked on eBay multiple times and I couldn't find it again. It's a Martian figure, maybe three, four feet. And you used to press its button and he would he would do the ack, ack, ack. Oh, and his yeah. brain would kind of move and light up. And I'm like, and it was 1999. I remember that. 1999. Because I'm like, oh, my God, look, it's the alien Mars attacks. My dad's like, that's too much money. Dude, I had the full scale figure so whatever size that was that had the button and it would do the act i had the flying saucer i had the robot that had the alien inside of it uh, dude i went fucking buck wild and one of the things that's great and it works to its favor like okay so you look at jurassic park you look at the dinosaurs there when you see the gallimimus and they're all stampeding that's a great scene how many gallimimus did they had to make one and then you copy and paste it a bunch of times 
mm-hmm. right? That's what they were able to do with these guys. If you look closely, they're like fucking indistinguishable from each other. But that's great because the source material, they're indistinguishable from each other. None of them have like a mohawk or a tattoo or spikes on one shoulder. They're all the exact same. So they just had to nail one really good Martian and then just use it all over again. And it's so good. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's some shots in here, too, where like when they get shot, what comes to mind is when they're in the White House they turn into like the actual rubber body suits are like laying on the yeah. floor. So it's a good mix. Like, and especially seeing this on tape when you're a kid, you know, then it's like, Oh, you know, this just kind of seamless on Blu-ray. It's more noticeable, but um, yeah. It's, what's uh, when you saw this as a kid, like, did your, did your dad take you to go see it? Did you see it on your, by yourself or like, how did, how did you see it? I'm I always would, curious to hear I, people's I would stories. Have been nine. So I know my dad would have taken me and he was always the guy who would be really excited about special effects with me. We would always talk about that. And so that was something we would talk about and, you know, the, the amalgamation of live action stuff and, and real and, you know, it, it was very funny and campy and silly. And so we were laughing the whole time. And my dad and I were both like completely bewildered that this wasn't like the next big fucking thing. I remember being a kid and this is one of the like the formative times as a kid where I realized like my taste is very unique, I guess. You know, when you're a kid, you think everybody likes the same shit you like, right? You're like, oh, yeah, th- this is great. I love this and everybody else has to love this. But then when you're like, hold on, th- nobody likes this but me and my dad. Like, this is so weird. Uh, so I felt like really let down by society. And that's probably why I became such a fringe counterculture little cuck. What about yourself, Doug? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I was six years old when this came out. So we we rented it from Blockbuster on tape. And I remember we were in California at the time because I went to go visit my cousins and we all watched it. And uh, we, some of us were my sister was scared of it, but I loved it. I'm like, this is this is like it was I felt like it was like when I watched the Toxic Avenger for the first time. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the movie I've always wanted because I used to love watching teenagers from outer space. On Son of Ghoul. And, uh, you know, uh, I never really watched Plan 9 as much. I know I probably should have, yeah. but whatever. But I loved, um, there was another one I liked called um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And the thing is, like, they were they were from the 50s, but they were kind of tame in comparison. So seeing this with, like, the aliens frying people and then, you know, them exploding Congress and you know, all this stuff, I'm like, like, man, this is great. This is hilarious. And then uh, them doing, like, the whole... Uh, where it cuts into like the Godzilla segments and stuff. I'm like, they reference Godzilla. I so fucking awesome. love that. Yeah. So Tim Burton kind of, uh, I feel like Tim Burton is kind of like us. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, Oh my God, it's like, we grew up watching this stuff and we're just going to implement and, and yeah. put it in here. Uh, Cause, and, and the other thing too, like with all these big names, this is the ultimate movie that is the big budget B movie, which oh, yeah. is kind of ballsy because I don't think this could get, I'm not saying it could, could it couldn't get made because of content. I don't think studios would take the risk to put like a huge, like a list celebrity people into like a movie that is going to be, end up being like, Oh, this is just a B movie. Like a, yeah. like a troll, a trolling type movie, kind of like a meaning of life or something like that. You know? <laughs> well, like you see that movie was the dead don't die or whatever. The yeah, Bill the Murray die, and yeah. Adam driver and Tilda Swinton and everybody's like, Oh, look at Iggy pop. This is so great. This is so fringe. And it's got all these great people. And this is art. Everybody fucking hated it and had a, a very minimal budget. You can't make this on a minimal budget. Like, I, if you put this kind of budget into a movie, this would be made by committee now. And that's the problem where this is like very clearly like kind of a singular vision. Sure, the script went through 12 drafts. Sure, the guy got fired and then rehired. There's obviously issues there, but it, it's it always feels like it's kind of working in the same direction, even with, like I said, kind of the kaleidoscope of story. 
But like you were talking about, modernly, nah, you don't get this kind of budget. And they'd have to have like a lowest common denominator where everybody gets their one moment. Yeah, because see, the thing is, like, I mean, Bill Murray was in Dead, Don't Die and Adam Driver. But these people won Oscars already. They've won awards and mm-hmm. everything. Uh, Glenn Close, uh, you know, Annette Benning, Pierce Brosnan, Danny fucking DeVito's in this, too. And um, yeah, it's it's just it's just so weird because it's kind of like almost like a time capsule of like, well, that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of people probably didn't get it because they're like, oh, what is it? Like people that take their movies like, oh, this isn't like Fast and the Furious. This is this is goofy looking aliens that, you know, it, I don't know. It, it's just hard to explain, like really like the phenomena it is. But for the people that absolutely love it, they absolutely love it. Like I said, like it's it's I want it to be either my next tattoo or something like I don't know. I thought it'd be kind of cool to have it like the, the I want the green and the yellow kind of uh, uh, rays going down my arm or something. Well, we'll see how it goes because everything's been closed because of COVID. But yeah, you know. my tattoo artist went and moved to Indiana. So bastards ruined everything. But yeah, it, what's great about this, too, is it's nostalgic so much, but it's not distractingly. So this isn't a period film, right? Sure. All the army stuff is like from the 50s, but then you have the contemporary kind of you know, uh, grunge, uh, I'm melancholic kids and stuff, which is funny now because we look back and it's like, especially as an adult, you're like, oh my God, those kids are so fucking annoying. Like Natalie mm-hmm. Portman and the dweeb, but it just holds up so well because it's become a time capsule to the nineties while being referential to the fifties, but not wholly dependent on it. It's very, very interesting. The kind of theme that they get. What do you think of like the overarching theme and kind of, I guess, anachronisms you know you got vinyl records and stuff and you have old cars but then you also have cutting edge technology yeah i thought that was great because it doesn't really pin well tim burton kind of knew that because when he did beetlejuice he put um you know like the the mambo and all that different music that you wouldn't really fit in i mean blood diner did the same thing it played 1950s music in this time so it, it doesn't really age it uh you know what i mean it's like oh this is from the 90s you know if it was 90s you'd have like uh Everything, everyone looked like the girls from Ghost World or something. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's, 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 it's great. You do like Natalie Portman is basically the watered down version of Lydia. Just saying like, quiet, people live here. Oh, My I'm whole so life emo. is a dark room. Yeah. Yeah. But you're eating pizza, you rich bastard in, in your, in your rich room. Um, but then there was Lucas Haas who played the, the donut guy, which he, he's crazy. He has some sort of sexual fetish with donuts. Every time he watches it on TV, he's like, he's like, oh, that's the international sign of the donut. Oh, Mm. man. And and then I guess the speech at the end of the movie, too, kind of brings the whole thing where it's like, was this really like serious or was this all just trolling the audience? He's like, well, maybe we could all just like live in teepees and be in peace. And then they have the mariachi playing, you know, like the broken. Like, that's that's hilarious because it's it is taking itself seriously. But then it's just so I, I don't even know how to put it. It's just. Tim Burton being Tim Burton, because I don't remember in the cards ever like them having a speech and, you know, the the mariachi like kind of singing the national anthem and stuff. Well, it's really great because, like you said, I think that this is like convergent evolution. I talk about that a lot. I don't think they had reshot or done anything to make a speech in retort to Independence Day. But I think it's beautiful synergy that you have Bill Paxton doing the fucking dramatic like we declare our independence is the whole thing. And then you have this, which is completely antithetical, where it's a wet fart of a speech, you know, like it is a whoopee cushion in comparison to this big triumphant, like uniting moment. It's a kid who had to write down. We should live in teepees with no like no cited source. I mean, it's just so stupid 
I love it. And I think that that, you know, I don't like it doesn't come across as like a spoof movie or a parody movie. It's not wholly dependent on other things. You know, it's not as though you're doing like a naked gun where it's like, oh, unless you've seen this, you won't necessarily get this. It's all very self-contained and really good. But then if you know those other things and you have that frame of reference, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, too, I'm, I didn't even think about it before. But when you said it was kind of fragmented into pieces. I could I don't think there was a card for that, but one of my favorite scenes and it sticks out to me because I remember it it creeped me out as a kid. But I think it's funny now when uh, it's like later on in the movie and then the, the French president calls uh, Jack Nicholson. He's like, oh, we've got good news. Uh-huh. The Martian ambassador is here. He's like, get out of the room. Get out now. Then the next shot is them getting fried. The Eiffel Tower is falling down. Um you know what I mean? Like, and and that's kind of just a card by itself. You know what I mean? Like just the Eiffel Tower falling down and then the French uh, president people are all getting zapped. So it's, I don't know why that scared me as a kid, but, you know, seeing it now, I could laugh about it, but I'm like, man, that's like kind of frightening stuff. You know, I, I, and the thing is, I remember too, back when eight always talks about that. She's like, it's like, oh, I'm going to get my kids to watch a gnome named Norm yeah. uh, when I'm grading papers. Uh, as a, when I was in school, I, I had the tape, I ended up buying, I remember I used my birthday money and I went out and bought the tape. It was like 25 bucks at Walmart. And at school, like, because sometimes our teachers like, oh, if anyone has any movies we could watch in class or when we're when we're you know not doing anything. And I brought in Mars Attacks and we watched Mars Attacks and it was a Christian wow. school. And they're like, I don't know if we can see this. I'm like, OK, I used to love doing that. I used to get in trouble for bringing movies into school and uh, having them watch it. Like, you can't have this because there's a well, it's it's a very tame sex scene in this movie with Christina Applegate. But uh, I remember yeah. everyone's like, oh, my God, in our class we just watched some people having sex and getting zapped so. honestly it could have been a lot worse but may i may I, re- you, I just was reminded of this uh you were talking about tattoos yes yes so i i have a misfits tattoo and i can trace some of my earliest love for the misfits because of this movie in the song astro zombies which is not based on this by any stretch of the means it came out much much earlier it was released in 82 uh, it's based loosely on the movie Astro Zombies, but there's a lyric which I've always loved. And your face drops in a pile of flesh, and then your heart heart pounds till it pumps in death. Prime directive, exterminate whatever stands left. And I've always fucking loved it. And there's there's a bunch of really just bitching lyrics throughout that whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard that, I was like, ah, kak, 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 kak. And I felt like I was like, I like I had to love this band with everything I was. And so it's one of the really cool things. It's like when you take how oddly anachronistic this source, because like the the cards go back to the 60s. The comic book that it's based on was in 52. It was November of 52. Wally West had just done an issue of Weird Science, which was, I think, issue 16. And it was like an alien that kind of looked like this. The narrative is really shitty and it's just like a one off thing. But it was an idea where he like knew that there was like kind of meat on the bone. So he went back to it and did the cards and then they went back to it in the 90s and re-released the cards and did some new ones. And so it's got this weird like vintage retro, but also super modern, because especially when we're in the 90s, that's when they were doing the really cool Mars Attacks crossovers with the comics. Did you ever read any of those? Uh, I did. Yeah. In the 90s, when they came back out and they, those are actually really fucking gory. So good. Yeah. Um, there's one I remember seeing the comic and it kind of freaked me out. Like I, it's weird. Things that freak me out are like just one little visual thing. It's this one where this girl's like hiding in the uh, no, it's a kid. It's like a little boy that's hiding in the bathroom like this, like against the wall. And then he's, his mom is like on the floor and her arm is like completely ripped off. And like she's like have her face a skeleton. Then you see the Martian with the gun, like looking around. And, and, oh, and uh, the kid is holding the, the saucer. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes, that yeah. was in Wizard Magazine. I, I actually had that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, like, yeah, that's crazy stuff. There's another one, too, that I wish they made another Mars Attacks movie because later in the 90s issues, they had aliens. Uh, they were the Martians, but they were like the, the alternate version of the Martians. Like some of them had like this weird like eye coming out of their brain. And it was like the big ones. And they landed on a yeah. farm because I, I one of my favorite things ever is uh, that imagery of aliens landing on a farm. I don't know. I just I love that. I, maybe it's an Ohio thing, but I used to get so it, it used to creep me out. And then my my parents used to buy these uh these books, they look like there was like Illuminati. They were they were black books. They look like encyclopedias. One of them was about the Illuminati. Another one was like strange appearances. Another one was like the um, the pyramids. And it was just all this stuff. And there was pictures in there, really like graphic pictures. Yeah, I remember seeing it. I'm like, man, that's great. Like they're like, oh, the driver was driving by himself in the middle of uh, southern Ohio. And he came across the lights and the people with no face came up and, you know, zapped him out of commission and destroyed the car. Yeah, so that's that's great. And then that that whole issue with that, I, I have to, I'll have to send it a picture in the mutant goons page. But yeah, there's one where he's landing on a farm, and then the the farm girl comes out. She has like a, she's like yeah, it's like, like a I'm brain, Dixie. and then like this dick eyed eyeball that's only one eyeball, almost like an antenna, comes out from the top, right? Yeah, I've seen that one. It's fucking weird, and it's like it's such a detour from the, the way the other ones look because they have such a skeletal face. I remember that one really catching my attention. Well, here, think of something to talk about. I'm going to grab my little, I bought a Mars Attacks book that has all the issues in it and like the cards. Let me grab it. It's right here. Awesome. I got to say, well, Doug's not online. I'm going to, I'm going to complain. I have a complaint about this fucking movie. Where's my giant bugs? If you look at the original card set, there are tons of the giant flies, helpless victim, so many cards death in the shelter trapped all of these about giant bugs being the monster the monster reaches in and removing the victims card number 33 terror in the railroad the flamethrowers so look at the cards there's so much dedicated to fucking giant bugs that aren't in the movie that's my one complaint about this film yeah i was gonna say that maybe the budget would have been skyrocketing if they got the giant bugs in there but yeah so see i have even some of like the uh the cards the in, in the package yeah. still and then, uh, yeah, so here's this book. So, you know, shameless plug, but uh, it's called Mars Attacks, the Tops Collection. I got it for like 20 bucks on Amazon, but it's every single piece of Mars Attacks merchandise in there, all scanned in like really high resolution. There's fan art in there. There's stuff from like the 90s comics. As you can see, I really love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So there's a, there, a, originally they were called Attack from Space before it was called Mars Attacks. Yeah. Let's see what else. Here. I'm trying to find that image I'm talking about here. With that with that kid in that bathroom that just stuck with me so much i'm like but yeah for all you people out there that have not seen mars attacks the story is basically it's it's a mishmash of a story i guess i'll just get into it while i'm trying to find the sucker but yeah so the martians kind of land and uh the movie starts out with a burning cr crowd of cattle which it comes directly from a card there's literally a card where it's a bunch of fucking cows on fire and i think it's really interesting to have, I think it's the Filipino cowboy. I think, like, yeah, the, yeah. It, it's such a nice little bit of like inclusivity where, it, you know, and it's also he's not being ridiculed because as a kid, I remember thinking like, oh, is he being mocked for being Asian? And then I was like, oh, no, the guy's literally just like, hey, your food smells good. And then it's a bunch of dying cows. Yeah, because he comes out. He's, he's like, he's like, howdy, Mr. Lee. What are you cooking up a face? Is that Filipino New Year? That's that's his line. And uh, no, I think it was just fine. I was kind of going around and uh, it's like, oh, no, that does smell good, but it's not coming from here. <laughs> so, OK, here it is. I, I'll, I'll try to put it up for you guys on the Patreon here. 
But yeah, so it's an image or uh, I'm trying to figure this out here. A little bit over. There you go. Over. There we go. Oh, yeah. So that imagery there, uh, it, it's just crazy because that's that's like typical 1950s mixed with like extreme gore and extreme violence. So, like I said, that that brings in my whole love for like the Toxic Avenger because I used to love like the monster look with that. And then when you mix in like the humor and uh, just the extreme violence and gore and then mixing in dark humor with all that, it's just uh, it, it's amazing. I, I can't give this movie its praises enough. And and the thing is, it's it, it's been dormant for a while. Yeah. But I realized uh, I went to Dark Delicacies and a few of these places uh, for I saw in Spirit Halloween, they're doing something with Mars Attack. So I get excited when I see like stuff for like Spirit kind of bringing back an IP like Mars Attacks or something like that, because it's like, hmm, is there something brewing like maybe in the works of possibly another Mars Attacks? Because they could really go a whole different route. Like they could make the, the Tim Burton one be like, oh, that's the you know, that's the PG-13 Mars Attacks. Now they're doing another one with the giant bugs. They're going to make it R rated. I, I don't, but see, here's the thing. It's like, I don't, the R rating really didn't, I love the original cards cause they're gory and violent, but this movie just sits well with me. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I really like it for what it is. And uh, it's a great yeah. introduction to horror, right? Cause you could show this to a kid without them being fucking traumatized. And then that gets them into the thing and other things that are what much more gruesome. These movies are really important because having people be able to have a palette for horror is, you know, that's how you get a new horror fan base. Otherwise, it withers on the vine and dies. And then if you don't have a new audience to make movies for, let me tell you, they're not going to make movies. You're going to get fucking Sharknado 17. You're not going to get anything new and contemporary. Oh, yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I love when people say like, oh, my God, I love B movies. I love. Uh, Sharknado versus Octopus Five, the beginning. I'm like, it, Don't. like you, know, yeah, Mars Attack. Like, and then I bring up Mars Attacks. They're like, eh, I never seen that movie. I don't know. It's just like the epitome movie because the thing is, it does take itself. It's it's seriously made, yes. but it's not. It's it's hard to explain because it, it's seriously made where it's not like winking at the camera constantly. It's absurdist, and it lets that absurdism speak for itself. Like the mm-hmm. idea of Jack Black like running and and trying to use the flag as a weapon and like the these absurd things that like with the right musical score and the right framing that's like this triumphant scene from a fucking GI Joe movie right but mm-hmm. it, the way that it's shot and the way that it's performed is so like it sh- just shows what an absurd fucking stupid thing that is to try and attack a space creature with a stick and so, like, the, that's the thing. Like, it's so absurdist, and then it doesn't have to take that extra step for that wink. And so, I could see how, like, a lot of people wouldn't get how very, very intentionally funny this movie is, which is a bit frustrating. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, like I was going in about the movie there. Like, there really, the aliens kind of just come out of Mars, and you never really see. Uh, you're never really on their home planet. You only see it from like the mothership. Yeah, where the shots take place. And uh, then you get the uh, another thing too. Danny, this is one of Danny Elfman's best scores besides Beetlejuice, in my opinion. Truly, because yeah. it doesn't have the same. Fo- like, tell me the difference between the Spider-Man one and two soundtrack. Like, you just you don't. It's the same fucking orchestral. Ha, ha, ha. Versus this has like theremins and weirdness. Oh yeah, and it builds up too with uh because it, it's it's horror, but it's also sci-fi. And there's no other. Not even Independence. They had that. Uh, you know, the, the ceremonies and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird because it really it's like big budget 1950s that goes back. And this is the only movie where you can see an alien giving a press conference uh, to, you know, Congress. Um, 
Yeah. So it's, it, it's crazy. Like you said, absurdist humor. This is almost like something from mad magazine where you'd see it's like, okay, now we got the ambassador of Mars coming over to speak. Come on down, Mr. Ambassador. <laughs> so. Well, so let's, let's kind of delve into that a little bit. So originally in the eighties, Alex Cox, the guy who was behind repo man and Sid and Nancy, he tried to shop this around and Frank Miller, the famed comic book artist uh, was really involved in that. And that ended up not getting worked. Uh, he apparently even posted the third draft of the script online, which funny enough predicted Trump as president. But like, I don't think that the 80s sensibility works for this film, which is shocking to hear me say, because 80s are my favorite like era. That's like the best action movies, the best buddy cop movies, the best comedies, the best horror. Like, I love that. But I think that being a little bit further removed so you have nostalgia and the timelessness of it is truly kind of a remarkable situation. Do you think, could you think of a single filmmaker who you'd be like, okay, yeah, you could try and do a take at this that I'd enjoy? Mm, oh, you're asking the wrong person. Honestly, like if it was, if it was me, I'd love to see a Harmony Corrine version of this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, like after like Trash Humpers, Spring Breakers and all that stuff, it could have that weird like kind of flair to it because like, I think the dialogue would be a lot of fun. So, yeah, Harmony Corrine pops up in mind. And then another one that pops up would be, uh, see, I was thinking the Ferrelli brothers, but they would probably fuck this up real bad. But yeah, just rubbing a bunch of cum on their helmets, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, that's funny. That's funny. But uh, no, honestly, it's, it's I think Tim Burton was the, the perfect pick yeah. for this movie, specifically if they were going to make like a remake or make a different version or something. Oh, man. That's and a, it stands that's real- out from all of his other films. You know, you watch Corpse Bride and you watch Batman. And you're like, well, one stop motion, one's not. But I could definitely see these are in the same universe. This doesn't look fuck all like I, anything else Tim Burton does. There's not a bunch no. of fucking stripes and spindly legs and spiders everywhere. And it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the closest you get to Tim Burton being Tim Burton is the woman in disguise. His girlfriend goes, at the time. It, yeah. Yeah. So she's in there because look at her suit and stuff like you get the swirly kind of colors to it the the really white pasty makeup she was in the original cards too yeah you know that's crazy so so she actually had to get sewn into that dress there's no zippers there's no buttons um and so lisa marie is the gal she never blinks on screen uh she tried suing tim burton after they broke up saying that he promised her money but then the court was like you mean he gave you like five million dollars and a bunch of shit and you're still wanting more fuck out of here so uh and she's not the only girlfriend. Jack Nicholson's girlfriend at the time plays a prostitute. The more you know. Oh, I didn't know that. Was she one of the ones that were outside in like the uh, Martin Short? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With Martin Short picking up. And well, hey, if I didn't know DC was easy, that easy to get prostitutes uh, looking like that right outside the White House. Seriously, this is obviously a pre 9-11 movie, right? Oh, yeah. Way before 9-11. Well, I mean, that's probably what Trump did before. Uh, you know, he's just, <laughs> oh, I just I just go down to the White House and I get to uh, uh, who was who what was her name? Stormy Daniels was down there waiting uh, for him. So <laughs> Still waiting for that PP tape to come out. And speaking of PP tape, Howard Stern. Have you heard the controversy with Howard Stern in this film? Howard Stern and Mars Attacks? No, do tell. So he was on in his first week with WNBC in 1982, and he and Fred Norris had created their, it was called Slim Whitman versus the Midget Aliens from Mars. Now, Stern was very concerned about being on a major network because at the time he was like, wait, I can't swear. I can't you know, be too provocative. So he was just trying to come up with clean content. 
So he watches Mars Attacks and he says it's a weird coincidence and it freaked me out. And he said that he wanted credit because it involves aliens being overthrown with the music of Slim Whitman, specifically aliens from Mars who are short. That is this movie. And it's so Hmm. weird to me that of all the things, I can't believe that somebody thought that idea was good enough to steal. So I have to believe that that was just coincidence. But really bizarre, right? Yeah, really bizarre. In fact, that I was going to say that's that's the one part that's the weakness to me is that where they they die from Slim Whitman, Slim Whitman music. Really? I'm just, yeah, I'm just like, oh come on. Honestly, for me, I was rooting for the aliens the whole time. I wanted the Martians to fry everyone and destroy Earth, but that's They'll just come my back cynical with earplugs. They'll be fine. Yeah, see, they're, they're like we we grew earplugs this time, and now we're ready to take over. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I don't know. It seemed like I, I'd want to party with the Martians. They seem to have a good time. They sit around, watch TV on a globe, and yeah. you know, sit in tidy whities all day. That's the life. Smoking nukes and whatnot. But smoking like, nukes. There's no definitive end game for this movie, which is great. You know, like that's one of the reasons why I give it a pass. It's a silly ending, but I love it. You know, it's not as silly an ending as like Signs. I will fucking never forget that M Night Shyamalan piece of shit, where I'm like, aliens are allergic to water, so they go to a planet which is surface area is over 70% water. Get the fuck out of my face. Versus this, it's like, how would the Martians know that people have phonograph records with this high-pitched screeching sound of Slim Whitman that blows up their brains? So, like, the serendipity of that kind of fix is fun. But And just like we said, like, they could always do a sequel where they have big earmuffs, and that'd be fine. Uh, well, let me ask you this, because there's so many characters. Besides the Martians, who's your favorite character? Because everyone just plays, like, a caricature of some stereotype in this film so it's it's a whole family i have to go with i really love jim brown pam greer i love the family the the two sons it's such a a uniquely 90s kind of narrative you know in the 90s it was very very common to have like parents in distress and divorcing and separating it but very rarely did you get the story of them working it out or having done Mm -hmm. effort to work it out you know sometimes it was like it would allude to it like at the end of liar liar or whatever but i love that like this family structure it was unconventional but everybody was altruistic and good uh jim brown is delightful i really loved how downtrodden he was i mean he clearly had watched like rocky two a thousand times before doing this movie and then pam greer like the story of how she got this movie is amazing so tim burton was like hey will you come out and audition she's like oh my dog's gonna die i'm really sorry i can't leave and so he was basically like hey you know what like the fact that you did that shows that you have the maternal character to play this character. So I want you in this film. And then the kids are great because they're like 90s kids, but they're not like stupid and annoying. So I really love that little family. What about yourself? Oh, no, I do like the family myself, but I'd probably have to say my favorite is um, uh, <laughs> Annette Benning and uh, the alternate Jack Nicholson. Barbara and Art Land. Yeah, when I was growing up, I always bring up nostalgic stories. And that's that's the one thing I got to say, too, is, you know, people can do shows talking about movies, you know, talking about the storylines and reviewing it. But so many people do that on podcasts. I my stuff I like to hear, and I'm sure there's plenty of others, is their personal stories with it, because how you watch this film, what were you doing at the time? Like, what were your emotions watching it? That's what I like to hear, because everyone is different with that. And when I was growing up, I had neighbors that were chronic alcoholics and they'd always the, the wife would always be smoking and. The other guy, he'd look, he'd look just, he'd look like that really sleazy Jack Nicholson type character. He's like, player anniversary, put it on black. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so, so those are the funniest because I don't know. It's just like, they don't get an arch throughout the movie. And then Annette Bening just kind of goes back into becoming an alcoholic. And she's like, Oh, I don't know. It's just every time they're on screen, they're funny. 
they feel like they feel like something from like Pecker, like John Waters movies. That's that's how they felt. Yeah, like a Pink Flamingos kind of yeah. like let's look down at this like pseudo new wave like and show like kind of how vapid it all is. And, and what's interesting is they kind of even have that in Independence Day when she's like, "Oh my god, I love aliens. So I'm gonna suck your dick," and then she blows up and stuff. You know, it's interesting, and I think it's it's a very we were very sardonic in the 90s, right? So mm-hmm. I think that, that that's something that rings true in this film a lot. Even to, you know, Independence Day to an extent, but this far more. Yeah, like there's this weird little speech where it starts playing like this, uh, this like heroic music when when Annette Benning's like in this AA meeting with the board. And she's like, I, I think the aliens, I think they're here to save us. <laughs> and then everyone starts clapping. She's like, oh, I did such a good speech. So yeah, they're great in there. And then I also like the, uh, when, uh, when uh, Byron gets picked up, by uh, I just I'll just call him Sleazy Nicholson yeah. uh, in the back, and he's like he's like I'm changing my life, I'm I'm doing my joggings, I'm losing the weight, I'm cutting out pork, and then after all that, like uh like Jack Nicholson turns him like, so you don't eat pork, right? <laughs> he even talks about like, converting to Islam and, and like doing these things, and he just takes this one self indulgent takeaway, very very funny. Like when I was a kid, I questioned if they were supposed to be the same guy at one point. You know, because it's not like he has like he has a fake schnoz, but not a tremendous amount of fake makeup. Uh, but then, like when you get older and you see the difference in the characters, how fun is that? Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know that was Jack Nicholson until maybe a few years ago. Oh, okay. When I was a kid, I thought it was the guy who played Beetle. I thought it was Michael Keaton. I think because he played he talks and acts like Beetlejuice. Wow, that's actually not bad. Yeah. Yeah, as a kid, yeah, I remember saying, I'm like, oh, they're the guy, that guy's Beetlejuice. I'm like, no, no, it's not. That's Jack Nicholson. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting, so apparently Nicholson just accepted the part without ever even reading the script just because he liked working with Tim Burton in the past. And, you know, you, you see a lot of people come back and return to work with people over and over again. Uh, I, I'm honestly surprised you don't see Nicholson in more of Burton's works. I feel like he could have really taken a lot and he obviously has a much wider range than people give him credit for but this is fun like you never get to see him play like it feels like jack nicholson is having fun versus so many movies from this era it was like god damn like what's the one with the dog that doesn't step on the cracks he looks like he wants to fucking kill himself that whole movie mm. oh as good as it gets was yeah. that the one yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's called uh, that's called Oscar fodder. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we're artistic and good, so we're going to be like this. But this this movie, I was like, we're not going to win any fucking Oscars. We just want to blow up the blow, see the destruction, see weird scenes. Because, like I said, that whole scene was like, you don't eat pork. That doesn't lead up to anything. They just kind of go, like you said, in the vignette. It, it reminds me a little bit of um, it, it, it reminds me like the Martians are like the overlaying plot of the meaning of life. Uh, like the Monty Python movie, because yeah. that's little vignettes. Yeah. But just imagine that's kind of how this is. But with the Martians throughout the whole segment. So it's it's weird how that works, but it, but it works. And what is your favorite visual segment if you have to pick just one? Oh, man, um, this, there's a few of them, actually. I like when um, when uh, Jack Nicholson, the president version, is getting the handshake and then the hand goes around him. Um, and then another one of my stabs favorite scenes, the titties with, stabs him yeah. through the titties and he has the international sign of the donut. Because uh, that's when they're just being dicks. It's yeah. like, oh, they're crying. I'm I'm giving you a tear. And then he's like, okay, well, fuck it. I'm just going to kill you with my hand. So there's that scene. And then I, I love the Congress scene. Yeah. Like I said, that that's like a that's like a classic scene when it comes to me. That's like the, uh, wait, wait, what was your favorite scene? Freddie Got Fingered, where it's just like, mm, that's, a, that's just a perfect, perfect scene. Oh, it, uh, yeah. It's the uh, proud, proud, get out of the fucking way. Like, yeah, that's like the perfect, 
blend of just multiple types of humor at once. You have like the very heavy handed, the very sardonic, the very tongue in cheek that I mean, it's satire. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And then in Congress, uh, it was like everything. It's all old white guys with glasses. They all look exactly the same. And uh, I'm just because I remember I didn't like the the George Romero crazies version because yeah. there was all just a bunch of like old white guys. Yeah. And that's kind of how it was when they're all kind of like they do the exact turn. Um, they're kind of like the lemmings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they yeah. all look, they turn. And then when uh, when the Martian pulls out like that little uh, note that he had, they all do the same thing. They all do. <gasps> Like they all do the same movements. It's just hilarious because of how like it's like a mad magazine kind of thing. And then uh, they read it and then they all get zapped and it, it's great. It's it just, it's hilarious. My, and the crazy oh. thing is um, with Pierce Brosnan being the scientist, he's wrong throughout the entire movie. Every single turn. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, well, maybe that was just like their, maybe that's just their way of saying hello, or, or maybe they don't like doves or, you know what I mean? It's just, but Rob Steiger has a great scene in this too. He's basically playing the, uh, um, the Arlie Ermy of the film. Hell yeah. Or Trump. I don't know. <laughs> now I'm going to shoehorn in my favorite, which I think is so innocuous. Most people won't even catch. I love, I think it's the funniest fucking thing in this movie. When you have the Martian carrying the cumbersome translator being like, no, stop. We come in peace. We're your friends. And just chasing people down to kill them is that is so fucking funny to me. Like I watch that and I'm just like, you ever see those things are just too funny to even laugh at where you're just like shaking your head like, damn it, that's a good bit. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Don't run. We are your friends. And 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 the crazy thing is there's no subtitles to the aliens. So you really don't know what the, what the Martians are thinking. It's it's it's. It's not a troll move. I think it's just because no other movies would have that where they're like kind of talking uh, seriously, like giving yeah. a speech and there's no subtitles. Well, so Warner really Brothers pushed hard to try and get there to be subtitles. But as a fan of like Star Trek and the next generation specifically, I, I think I talked about Darmok on last week's episode, too. But like, I love the idea. Like, It's such a convenient narrative to understand. Right. Things become so much less scary when you can relate and you can understand. Is a T-Rex as scary as Michael Myers? Eh, I mean, it might be more intimidating, but I don't think the concept is as scary because you're realizing that you are its food. But when it comes to Michael Myers, like, why? I don't understand why. And that's why Carpenter will always beat Zombie, because I don't care that I'm supposed to sympathize. I don't care that he was abused. I don't care that he was fat. I don't need those excuses because the excuses lets you rationalize rationalization subdues fear. Whereas in this, you don't know. And it's so great. Why did they come? Why did they come now? What is their intent? Are they trying to have sex with the women that they're gawking at? Can they have sex? Like there's it's so obtuse and there's no comforting narrative of like, oh, we're here to steal your gold like Battlefield Earth. We're here to do this one thing. No, they're just here to fuck with us. And that's the best part. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like and, and this is one of those movies, too, that you could watch multiple times. And every time you watch it, uh, you pick up something new. Like, for example, like the whole background scene, like they abduct clowns. They ha they like, why are they doing these experiences of moving a chihuahua's head and putting on a girl's body? So good. And it, it, it leads to nothing because, you know, and the chihuahua's strangling one of the Martians later on in the movie. Like the head just comes completely off. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, well, yeah, you guys are just fucking sadistic and weird. And then when they finally get the nuke, uh, they smoke the nuke. And yeah. uh, yeah, it's, they could survive a nuclear explosion, but they can't survive Slim Whitman's music. So what does that say? And that's one of the things I love about it is it's such an absurdist idea where you show like 
I don't know. It's it's beautiful. Like it's so funny to me the fact of like they establish rules that don't make sense, but they make sense in the narrative of the film. Punching it in the head and cracking its its little dome can kill it. Shooting it can kill it. Nuking it can't kill it. Yodeling can kill it. But like that, that's one of the really fun elements of and it. It follows consistently. You know, with a lot of absurdist humor, and st- you could just see how they would just be like, ah, phoning it in, whatever. Like, this one dies because it trips and falls down or whatever. No, every single time you see one die, it's through a point and purpose. So, like, I really love those parameters. Do you think that, like, that helps the structure of the film? Oh, it does tremendously. Like, that, that's just one of those things, like you said, where it's like an anti-type movie where it doesn't follow those tropes. So, yeah, what, what you said is exactly true. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on point with that, too. Well, perfect. And being on point reminds me that we should be talking to our good friend, Huntar, or also known as Techno Destructo, uh, formerly of Guar, kind of now modernly back with Guar. We talk about a lot of shit from pro wrestling to fucking cereal boxes and hot sauce. So enjoy our conversation with Techno Destructo. This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Doug. But our esteemed guest, one Hunter Jackson, who some of you may know as Techno Butt-Fucking-Destructo. Hunter, how are you today? I'm ready to deliver the goods. Here we go, buddy. So, for those of you who are uninitiated, I think that your resume is longer than Shaquille O'Neal's wiener. Can you go through just some of the things that you do? And then we can kind of go through like the chronological history of all the things that make you a glorious goon. So I'm like a weird, crazy artist. I grew up in the sticks of in Virginia. My dad was a uh, warden of a big prison. And I like got hooked on comic books and stuff like that as a kid. Yeah. And it really made me hungry that there was a whole world of crazy shit out there, you know, and I was really hungry for it. And I like got into underground comics at a really early, like when I was still in high school, I actually found a comic book store. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, you didn't, there weren't such things as comic book stores, especially way out in the sticks. And I got, This guy like had just bought out somebody's collection and he had a whole box of underground comics he wanted to get rid of. He didn't even want them in his store. And I just happened to be there and bought like this whole box of Robert Crumb. And uh, there were a whole bunch of old junk waffle comics, which is uh, uh, Vaughn Bodie, who nowadays I've actually met his son, Mark Bodie, who has continued his uh, legacy and stuff and actually get to work with him. But anyway, so I was all warped by that stuff. Yeah. And I I ended up, I went to uh, art school and uh, I went through commercial art, but I never fit in. It was, I was a real square peg trying to get hammered into the round hole. I never really fit fit in. The teachers never told me to do anything except not what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, told me not to do the things that I wanted to do. And it was like, oh, there's no market for that. And I was like, you know, that's bullshit because I know that I'm not a unique person, that there are people just like me. They're into the same weirdo shit as I am. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's who I'm going to do it for. You know, so I used my prison guard uh, salary to 
get a warehouse space. And I started making a movie because I had seen, I had worked on movie projects and stuff while I was in college. In fact, that animation and filmmaking was really my main emphasis. And uh, so after I got out of college, I wanted to make uh, movies because Star Wars had come out and I fucking hated Star Wars, man. To me, I, I couldn't believe it. I was so pissed because I felt like Star Wars was such a ripoff of uh, Jack Kirby yep. and a lot of his concepts and stuff like that. And and uh, I also felt that it was real watered down for kids, you know. And so I, I was determined that I wanted to make a good science fiction movie because everybody was ranting and raving about how awesome Star Wars movie was. You know, and I felt like it really sucked, especially even though it was nominated for, a, you know, Academy Award for the music. I hated the music and Star Wars. Yeah. And I felt like that I wanted to show people that the ultimate science fiction movie was actually going to be like have a, a have a punk rock soundtrack and be a lot more like Road Warrior with crazy barbarian dudes hacking each other to pieces and stuff like that. So that's sort of how I, I ended up. I got started trying to make movies and stuff. Yeah. And the tentative title of the movie I was working on was called Scum Dogs of the Universe. And it was about a race of outer space pirates that had been marooned on Earth, you know? And so in order to find my punk rock soundtrack, there was a lot of musicians and stuff that had spaces in the same warehouse building as me. That's where I met Dave Brocky, who became Odorous, the lead singer of War. Yeah. And uh, he was in a band called Death Piggy. And he had a studio space in the same warehouse building. And uh, one of the things he used to do with Death Piggy a lot was he would come up with different stupid bands with his friends and just write a couple of songs. And then they would do like a two song set to warm up for his own band, you know? And so he was hanging out with me and in my space one day, and we were talking about my plans for the movie and all. And so he was like, well, let's, let's try putting these costumes on and just play like we're like some kind of kiss wannabe band, you know? And so I would show up at the death biggie show with all the bags and a big, all the costumes in a big garbage bag and dump them out and everybody would put on the different shit. And then they would do a couple of stupid songs, you know, but as it time went on, people were more interested kind of in the weird band, yep. crazy band than they were in death piggy and the death piggy members were all going their separate ways and stuff like that. And so we started doing guar for real. And next thing you know, uh, you know, as we were doing guar, I kept being able to do, video projects and stuff like that. Yeah. So that kept me going. And also the comics was a big influence on the whole shebang. So it gave me an opportunity to make comics and sell them at the shows, you know, the next thing you know, I'm promoting war. I knew that through my comic books and, and stuff going to comic book conventions, I knew that conventions was a really good angle for us to market war from. Oh, so I sure. started going to getting booths at comic conventions and stuff. And I would like put on this, I would say, okay, I'm going to bring the band members and we're going to put on a big spectacle. People are going to be able to see the stuff for real and all that. Once they realized what I was doing, then they would start giving me hotel rooms and uh, free booth space and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's when Gua really started to take off. 
because we got relaxed into that big obsessive fan base, yep. you know, and Guar really started to roll pretty good, you know, and and then but then we sort of sort of got to the point where uh, Dave especially uh, was like he he didn't really like all, having to do like for me the ultimate goal was like a TV show. Yeah, I wanted there to be a fucking like Adult Swim live action Guar TV show or something like that, you know, which would have been and, amazing. Uh, I mean. Imagine like your yeah. Harvey Birdman, but featuring you scum fucks. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like metal metalocalypse uh, kind of took the, the, but they're not as good. I, I think that, you know, your movies that you did like Phallus and Wonderland, like the, just the whole thing in general is like something that would have been right up adult swims alley. And, and I'm kind of glad people are learning about it again. Well, yeah. And see, that's part of the reason it's just like a record label will sometimes buy a, a band just to shelve them. So they yep. won't be competition for their other band that they really want to push. You know, that happens to a lot of bands. In fact, Haunted Garage accused Metal Blade of doing that to them because they felt like Metal Blade wouldn't push them. They actually sort of shelved them in order so they wouldn't that they wouldn't compete with Guar. But that's that's uh, them, their angle of the story. You know, I'm not saying that there's not aspects of it that are pro- possibly true, but, you know, all that, all that stuff is is the same thing, you know? Stuff like that happens all the time. And what's so great about what you did, it's organic. That was the creative message. It's not like you try and bootstrap and bleed the stone and go, oh, we have a popular bland. We, we might as well merchandise this and make a fucking hacky sack. And like, I love the Misfits, right? I have a fucking tattoo for them. I've seen Danzig and Doyle do tons of Misfits sets, but it fucking disgusts me to see that Crimson Ghost on everything from shoelaces to binkies or whatever, because they're bleeding that stone versus you guys, everything you were doing was a creative endeavor and it wasn't just exploitation and that earnestness i think that kind of makes it timeless without blowing too much smoke yeah and like i wanted i did guar comics because i wanted to see i was into comics and i wanted to see guar comics and same thing uh, about when uh one of the projects i'm most proud of is when we uh did the miniature war game you know because i've always been into warhammer stuff hell yeah since that company first launched uh, I've followed them over the years and actually during Gwar's development, I met with them in Nottingham quite a few times to try to get Gwar involved with them. They were always afraid that, well, Gwar's going to break the, you know, Warhammer universe, whether it was 40 K or, or the regular one, yeah. you know, but they did do stuff like there's a miniature that's a servitor character that is techno destructive. And when I met with, uh, at the time it was Andy Jones, was one of their main dudes and I met with him and he confessed to me that that particular miniature was actually based on techno destructo. Awesome. But you know, I was into all that stuff. So when we do the games and stuff, it's because I'm into it and I want, and I was really happy to be able to help write the rules to the game and all that stuff. And when we went on tour that year, me and beefcake who was being played by Casey Orr at the time actually went to the game geek stores in costume and played against each other, you know, and it was really fun. We I had a really that. good time, but yeah, and that's what it's all about. And then, so it, while I was doing Guar, a lot of times we would like write a whole new show, you know, that all evol- revolved around the, the new music of the new album we put out, Yeah, you know, so we'd have this plot line 
that uses all the new music. And then we created new characters and stuff. So we'd make a big loop around the country, but then we'd want to do it again, but we wouldn't want to use the same exact show, but we wouldn't want to build a whole new thing either. So what we would do is we would write a wrestling show where we would use all the same characters, but it would be in a wrestling format. And, And we would paint a backdrop that would be a crowd. So it's sort of like the stage is the wrestling ring that's in the middle of the arena and you're seeing this crowd of weirdos on the other side of the ring, you know, that that's a crowd just like you are, you know, and we would put like Galactus and in the way back and different things like that. And King Kong and stuff like that, as well as, you know, other closer up front, you would have celebrities and different stuff. Plus just stupid, funny looking people, you know, too. And so, we would do like a wrestling show and we would during like four different points of the show or so we would have the guy uh, stretch the ropes just across the front of the stage, you know? So we would have the ropes across the front of the stage and we would do our wrestling thing, you know? And uh, so I was so used to doing wrestling and doing stuff like that, that after I went my separate way from Guar, I got the opportunity to do professional wrestling as techno destructo. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You know, I wanted what the way that it happened was that uh, I was living at this place that was actually called Jello House because it was run by the guy that runs Green Jello, right? Oh, right on. So he had this, he had this uh, get rich quick scheme where he was going to rent a house and then fill it up with all of the weirdest people he could find and put video cameras everywhere. You know, and he thought he was going to do big a brother. show, yeah. yeah, and which was a good idea. It could have been funny, and he filmed a lot of shit. But uh, anyway, while I was living there, I met the Radioactive Chicken Heads, who are sort of like a sub band of Green Jello. Where, as you know, Bill always brags about him how he's had like you know hundreds of musicians in his band. You know, when really. To be honest, that's nothing to brag about. Nobody wants to be in your band. Yeah, it's uh, Axel Rose territory, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, anyway, he he, the Chicken Heads are sort of like disgruntled ex Green Jello members that went off and made their own cool band on their own. You know. So I was hanging out with them. One of their a uh, couple of their members were getting married, and so this was going to be a big event in Las Vegas. It was going to have wrestling and all kinds of stuff Love at it. it. And I was like, hey, I want to go. How do I, can I get on on the card? And so this show was being run by this guy named Sin Bodhi, who used to be a WWF wrestler. And he got, you know, he lost his career over some political bullshit. And he ended up becoming a sideshow, more of a sideshow performer. And he's a, he's an expert samurai sword wielder and, and all kinds of stuff. Well, like, and his new gimmick uh, is way better. The creepy clown and covered in tattoos. I mean, he looks like Bam Bam Bigelow skull fucked Rob Zombie. So I, I think he traded upwards. Yeah, definitely. He's he like uh, he went into it hardcore and and threw his heart into it. And, you know, the funny thing about it is that guy, I think his name is Gray White Wyatt. Oh, Gray Wyatt. Like yeah. The guy who used to so, be the uh, he's IRS's son. If you remember Irvin R. Scheister. So uh, yeah, no so wonder he guy, became famous, right? Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> so that guy has been ripping off Sin Bodhi's gimmick for quite some time now. 
But anyway, I'm, that's how I met Sinbodi. And uh, he put me on the card that show. And that's when I first met him. I'm like, I'd really freak show wrestling, to, by the way, right? Yeah. Freak show yeah, wrestling right. was his show. So I, I started performing with freak show wrestling. He introduced me to Brian Kendrick. Spanky. I built a bunch of stuff for him. Hell yeah. And, I all, and he also had his own, I think it was called WP Wrestling Pro Wrestling. Yeah. Wrestling Pro Wrestling. I worked for them a little bit and I met Serial Man. Love was Serial like a, Man. What yeah, a he, fucking he was amazing doing that gimmick, right? Man gimmick before he met me, but we would we really worked well together. I thought oh, yeah. it was really a lot of fun, and I helped him revamp his look and taught him a little bit about how to how Guar builds stuff and uh, all like that. So I started doing the professional wrestling and stuff here in in the L.A. area and, and all, and I was really it was really going well. I was really taking off, and then COVID sort of pulled the rug out of all that. You know, I was getting ready to do a really cool show with uh, Micromania, which is a uh, all little person. It used to be called Midget Mania, but Ooh. they changed their name to Micromania now. That's and, politically uh, correct. I understand it. When your talent is that demographic, I think that you could, <laughs> right? You don't want to insult the talent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the dude that runs it, he's married. He's married to a little person. There you go. You know? So anyway. Uh, it's a really cool show and I was really uh, happy to be a part of it. You know, that they wanted me to be a part of it. But then once COVID happened and the whole wrestling scene just shut down in LA, Hard. they sort of moved further to the Southeast, you know, where there w- the wrestling stuff is still alive. And I actually performed during COVID. I actually performed in Florida one time and I hope I get to go back there. It was, uh, for ARW, but yeah, man, they were really cool. And they brought me to Florida and I got to, to wrestle for their company and stuff. And I had a blast. It was really fun. Fuck so, yeah, dude. And, and your and gimmick's since, great because your backpack, that's got to protect your spine, right? Well, uh, it's pretty heavy. In, in fact, it was funny because uh, I had been, been doing this alien danger stuff, helping him, uh, helping James Balsamo uh, make, he's, he's like a notorious B-movie director who's put out like 30 movies crazy yeah (laughs) yeah man even though there's not really the budget for me to do what i would be you know wanting to do for him it was still a lot of fun to work for him and uh i got to build a bunch of cool monsters and then i got to actually fight a bunch of them too so it was really fun and doug was inside of a bunch of them and he did a really good job too yeah, it was fun. I got to actually feel like how it felt to get punched in the face with a wrench in the water as the bog beast. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, and then the bog yeah. beast, his hands filled up with water so fast Could they got waterlogged, and he and they were so heavy that it wasn't possible for a human being to even lift him up. It was pretty funny. Yeah, that, that was some good stuff. Yeah, and then the wrestling scene too. You even got to do your wrestling in uh, in the Alien Danger movie. So that was fun. yeah, and and uh, that was fun too because I got to meet. The Barbarian and the Warlord, the powers of pain when they were doing WWE. Hell yeah. Uh, both of those two guys, I used to go see them at the Richmond Coliseum all the time because the Coliseum where they had wrestling was only about 10 blocks away from where Guar's studio was. Get the so, fuck out. That's perfect yeah. synergy. Yeah. So we would, uh, and a lot of us, I'm talking about the original uh, dairy building, it was called. It used to be a ice cream. Packaging plant and or 
it was a dairy and they not just ice cream, but butter. They had like gigantic butter churn machines and shit. I have but a gigantic butter churning machine right here, big boys. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> what so, so they had like, it was a really crazy big building and it had two, two corners of it had giant milk bottles on it. So it was called the milk bottle building. And uh, that was where Guar first started, but it was only about 10 blocks away from where the Richmond Coliseum was, where the wrestling shows used to be. So I would go and buy as many tickets as I could and then um, sell them to my friends and stuff. And we'd all go in a big pack. And my girlfriend used to make these, we would all root for the Ivan Koloff. This was in the the Reagan Cold War years. Hell yeah. So we were all rooting for Ivan Koloff, the Russian dude. And he had two, uh, Ivan and Nikita Koloff and uh, Crusher Khrushchev was the third one. And they all wore these red uh, onesies with a big hammer, yellow yep. hammer and sickle. So my girlfriend made us these shirts that were all red T-shirts with a big hammer and sickle on. Oh, shit. And we all used to go and have so much fun. And because it was only 10 blocks away, nobody had to drive. So we could get drunk as we wanted <laughs> there we to go. and have a really good time. Let me ask, was, did you ever get any confrontations fun. with the crowd? Because back in the day, supporting a heel was legitimately dangerous. Now, smart marks are so prevalent that like, if you don't root for the heel, you're kind of viewed as like a child, right? Like if somebody earnestly, day. yeah, like an, an earnest John Cena fan gets laughed at versus like the CM Punk, you're like, oh, we have to like that guy, the counter fringe guy. But back then. You're wearing a sickle and hammer while an actor's in the White House. That's dangerous shit. Yeah, it was crazy. And we got a lot of looks. And the the way the matches would always go is they were always fighting against the Rock and Roll Express, right? Who are Bobby and two, Ricky. Yeah, two pretty Still boy teenagers, you know. <laughs> and for the whole match, however long the match was supposed to be, they would just brutalize them, throw them around the ring, and do all kinds of fucked up shit to them. And then the rock and roll express would always win at the end, you know, they would pull it off through some fluke, you know, and all of a sudden they would win. And the whole crowd would just go ape shit. The Rocky Balboa. Oh, he turned it around. How, Yep. how did they possibly win against the odds? But it was fun, you know, and, but even though my girlfriend actively tried to pick fights with people, yes, we never really got in any, any fisty cuffs. However, one time, there was one time when there was a little old lady with her grandkids sitting right in front of us. Uh-oh. And uh, she was starting to get really pissed when we were rooting for the Russians and stuff. And the Rock and Roll Express was getting all brutalized and all that. She was starting to get really pissed. And at one point when I cheered for the Russians, she turned around and like she was so mad. And I just, I just went like, I just put my hands up and I went, we're, we're just here having fun, just like you, you know, and smile. Solid work. Come on, man. And then she turned around and had fun. She realized what, you know, that we didn't really, we yeah. weren't really trying for a communist takeover of the United States. This wasn't Red Dawn. You weren't going to start your coup. Yeah. But, you know, the other funny thing about it, too, is that the very first time that we did it, Nikita Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev came running over to the our side of the ring and were like pointing at us and stuff. And they went over to Ivan and were like, hey, look, we have fans. Yeah, yeah. We're going on like that. And as soon as they got over to Ivan, he kind of just went like this. You Fuck. Know? 
And from then on, they never acknowledged us in any way. We still yeah. cheered for them with all our hearts, you know, but the heel is not supposed to have fans. Exactly. So they never, ever acknowledged us. And, you know, the, the funny, another funny thing about it was Alan Koloff ran after he, after McMahon ruined fucking professional wrestling for everybody. Well, with characters crushed, like the garbage man? I mean, what? <laughs> it's like, Man, we, we used to, when I was into it, there were two kinds of wrestling. There was the real redneck wrestling that yeah. all of us like to go and see. And then there was that fake Hulk Hogan bullshit for little kids. You know, yeah, those were the two kinds of wrestling. So and you're a Dusty Rhodes never, guy, I take it. We, if we would never even watch the Hulk Hogan wrestling on TV yep. normally, you know? And we weren't even interested in it at all. It was so such a different animal to us that it wasn't even interesting to us. But anyway, let me ask you a question. You're a theatrical guy. You're an over the top guy. Um, and I don't mean that in any kind of slight. What do you think of a guy like the ultimate warrior who's meant to play on all the strengths of Hulk Hogan? But it's as if Vince McMahon did like four lines of coke lined with steroids and was like, OK, let's just go to the maximum. Can you can you appreciate that, or is it still too mainstream with the blonde-haired uh, homophobe? I remember when when Ultimate Warrior came out, and I thought he was pretty funny and stuff. Yeah, fucking crazy. Yeah, he was crazy and all. And but now that now that I've like done it and stuff like that, and heard pro real professional wrestlers talk about him, Ooh. you know, like they all were like, oh, my God, the guy was so unprofessional. He was such a maniac. Yeah. You know, he, he never did anything right. You know, he just would go out there and just, you know, scream and yell. And, and worse than that, he did shit like he would the night of the show. That summer the crowd being full. He would demand more money Crazy. or he's not going on. You know, come on. You can't you can't do that. Well, yeah, then there's the hot. They stink. got away with it. So that's why he kept doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, See, WCW made their ripoff, the Renegade. And I remember that being a whole thing where people were like, oh, that's uncouth. I'm like, uncouth. Motherfucker. He extorted people. He dropped <laughs> motherfuckers on. The like, if you actually watch an Ultimate Warrior match, it's hilarious. He when the, the bell rings, he's blown up and then he drops people on their face. The only person more dangerous, I think, is Mabel. But that's a different discussion. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. But it was fun, man. I, I had so many cool uh, experiences as, as a kid. It was me and my dad. My dad used to take me to wrestling when I was in fourth grade and stuff. Yeah. And the reason that Ivan Koloff is my favorite is because he. we went to a match one time. And I was actually there to see... The Avenger, the Blue Avenger versus the Super Destroyer. The Super Destroyer was this giant dude that had like a gold mask with eagles on it or something. And then the, the Avenger was one of the few actually cut white dudes, you know, and uh, but he wore a lucha costume, which made me think of superhero. Right? There we go. Yeah, so that, was, that was the show I want. I came to see. But when we got there. At the same time period, Ivan Koloff was doing this gimmick with uh, Jimmy Valiant, who was the guy with the big, he had this big, huge white hair, oh, yeah. this big, huge white beard, and he would shake his head around, you know, and people would start beating him up, and he would just, like, go around the ring, and he would be shaking his head, and all of his hair would go, poof, 
poof, poof, you know? Yeah. So, and he, he always had a giant boom box on his shoulder and he would play that Manhattan transfer song about the boy from New York city, you know, yeah, that was his gimmick. He would come out and he would have the giant boom box on his shoulder and they would be playing that song over the PA, you know? So when I went and saw him live, he was supposed to wrestle Ivan Koloff, who I loved at the time, but he definitely was my favorite wrestler. Jimmy Valiant comes out with the boom box on his shoulder and he's dancing around to the Manhattan transfer song in the ring. And all of a sudden, Ivan Koloff comes busting out of the locker room, slides into the ring, grabs the boom box off of his shoulder and just goes, wham. And it was some kind of a breakaway gimmick or something. Yeah. And it just shattered into a million pieces. It was probably full of glitter too. And <laughs> it was just, and Jimmy Valley just laid out unconscious yeah. like a star in the middle of the ring. And Ivan Koloff stomped around a little bit and left. And then they ran after Ivan Koloff left. That's when they rang the bell. It was so funny. It was to this day, it was the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen in my life. And after that, Ivan Koloff was my fucking favorite wrestler from then on, you know? And that's the kind of shit that I tried to do with Guar is yeah. do super crazy, spectacular, crazy shit like that. And then when I started doing wrestling again, I actually took some of the Guar gimmicks and tried to do them in the ring. Like when I was working with Serial Man, we were doing this match that we were calling the bloodbath for a balanced breakfast. I love right? that. And so that's a uh, pay-per-view. Right we did there. all kinds of shit with that. Yeah, it was fun. And I like would try to, I ha would have milk. I would have my valet there at ringside to help hand me my gimmicks and stuff. So I had a carton of milk and I would dump the milk on cereal man to get him, make him soggy, you know, and, and then we would start doing the blood bags. She would sneak me the blood bags. Yeah. And I would bust people's head open with my wrench and eat their brain. That's and yummy. Like spew, spew it out into the audience and stuff and all that fun stuff like that. And I would do the blood bags. I can like the, the guy will bounce me against the ropes because I'm the trick to it is. The blood mix is like really slippery. And if it gets in the ring, it causes a problem for anything that's going to happen after me. So yeah. I have to be really careful. And uh, so I, we figured out that you could throw me against the ropes and I could sort of pop it over my shoulder, get a bunch of it on my face, but most of it would go into the front row. Nice. Know? The splash and, zone. Uh, it would shoot up into the air and everybody in the whole arena could see it really well. You know, it was fun. Well, I remember you. A lot of I remember you telling me that story too. Where did Aguar play at one of those? Uh, what I don't know event what it, it is, but they poured the blood in that really expensive speaker. And you guys, did you guys ever play it there after that or no? Oh yeah, he's talking about the nine thirty club when we first started out. One of our first outside of Richmond, Virginia, our home city, we played in Washington D.C. That, that was the weird thing about Richmond, Virginia is because it turned out to be, I had no idea when it was going on, but it turned out to be that Washington, the Washington DC areas was one of the hubs of the punk rock scene. Fuck yeah, dude. Minor threat. All of that. You know? So when bands would be traveling around, they would go to LA and San Francisco 
and then they would want to go to to Philadelphia and New York, and they would come to Washington, D.C. And Richmond, Virginia is only 90 minutes south of that. So a lot of amazingly cool bands would come down to Richmond and do a quickie show, you know, and uh, to get back on the road. But so there were a lot of amazing shows there. I remember seeing the Dead Kennedys. That was the first time I'd ever seen a slam pit, you know, where the, yeah. the people were swirling around like a like a hurricane in the middle of the crowd. That's the first time I'd ever seen that. That's back when it was safe for girls to actually get in the slam pit. Isn't that gross modern culture? Which would protect them, but no more. <laughs> Yeah, dude, it drives anyway. me fucking nuts. Uh, the the amount of perverse shit I've seen from guys pretending to be, you know, progressive dudes. But as soon as a woman's in a pit, they start hopping a field or whatever. It's just the most scum fuck pathetic. If you're a guy and you've done it, you can never apologize enough. And if you think you're going to do it, you can get fucked because I hate that shit. <laughs> yeah, and girl. I'm, but actually, I'm talking about more girls actually getting hurt, like stomped on. Oh, for falling sure. Falling down. You know, because back then, if you fell down in that in the slam pit, there would be a million hands yanking you back up again. You know, but uh, but it wasn't long before everybody was getting trampled. And I think a lot of it too were frat boys would come. Uh, you know, oh, this is a punk rock show. Yeah, let's go crazy. You know, and stuff like that. And I'll tell you, me and the sex executioner. We used to love to do the the exact opposite back to the frat boys because Chuck Chuck Varga, who used to play Sexecutioner, he lived in Charlottesville, which we know now has become famous because of all of the stupid ass race riots that went there over the dumbass Confederate monuments and shit. Yep. But back in those days, it was famous because UVA was there and. Uh, it was a popular college town and they had a big time college basketball team. So anyway, Chuck's from that area and uh, they were, that town was super infested with frat boys. And Chuck was so funny because he would hit them with this like intellectual jargon that would get them all confused and pissed off and they wouldn't know what to do. And then they would attack him and he would kick their ass. Love it. <laughs> and it was, it was really fun to watch him like, work his magic on these people. And I, like one time I saw this guy get pissed and try to do a roundhouse kick on him. And he just like calmly just caught the guy's arm under his, his arm and then just fell on it. You know? <laughs> and the guy was like, ah, ah, ah. and I was like, come on, Chuck, let's, I think it's time for us to go, you know, but did, yeah, did man, he, he used to, he, did he come he off as like, Really, uh, good. What would execution always say? Like, excuse me, sexman. Like, did he give him that whole accent too, or did he just give him like the regular voice? Well, see, that's the thing about Chuck is he's like he's like super intellectual, and he always likes to use these super long. Uh, uh, oh man, I know I'm going to blow this word. Multisyllabic. <laughs> Multisyllabic. Yeah, you're good. You were close. Something like that. Participation trophy. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, and that was one of the things I used to like to hang out with him, you know, because he was like a he was like a punk rock intellectual, you know, and uh, it was fun. (laughs) That's one of the great things about like punk and hardcore. There's there's a prima facie. It's like, you know, 
a face level where you could enjoy it, right? Where you enjoy the aggression, you enjoy the simplicity of it. But then it, it, it keeps having layers. And that's a great thing when it comes to metal, too. You know, you get layers, you get, you know, I mean, how many fucking uh, country bands do the parable of Icarus, right? It doesn't happen. <laughs> so punk and metal were always my thing because you could just enjoy it. You could just be in a pissed off mood and want to punch something and run in a circle. Or you could sit there and go like, oh, wow, like there's some really good substance there. And then I have a recommendation for you, my friend. Uh, you were talking about violence against women and like mosh pits and stuff. There's a great band called Svalbard, S-V-A-B-L, or wait, S-V-A-L-B-A-R-D from England. They have some great songs about that exact topic and I uh, can't recommend them enough. Thumbs up. Cool. Awesome. Very yeah, rare I could crowbar that into discussion on this show. We usually talk about blood and guts, so I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the things that made Guar fun for me. And that's why I like to hang out with Dave Brocky and Chuck Varga and the other people that were the main writers behind Guar. Is a lot of it is there's lots of different levels of social satire and stuff in there. And I always felt like that it was important for us to have stuff that appeals to the super hardcore fans that just want to shake their head around and, you know, jump up and down all the way back to the co college professors in the back row that are stroking their beards and analyzing the social implications of it all, yeah. you know, and there's something for every level in between there, you know, and that one of the big, like with me coming back with them and again, and all one of the main things that I've been saying to them is they, They've been trying to get me to come back for quite a while. One of the main things I've been saying is I really wish you guys had a girl, you know? It's big, and, right? Yeah. And it's and it's not just for the like creepy pervy dudes and stuff. The main reason you want it, a girl, is and she shouldn't just be a stripper either. Yeah, exactly. If anything, the she should be the most brutal one of you guys. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like it, the whole parody, the whole funny part about all these dudes that are acting all macho and and all that and all of a sudden the girl comes out and kicks everybody's ass right keep them you in know, check she's the most powerful one and and that's the thing it it cultivates a female fan base in a big way will bring women to the show as well and get them interested as well i'm absolutely for that and danielle was always so awesome as far as uh the way that she really researched the uh women's role in mythology and stuff so that her character actually had a lot to say. Well, that's huge because so many of the genres we're talking about are very male predominated. They're very exclusionary, whether deliberate or not. And I mean, I think that if you're a, a girl who's into these things or a woman, however you want to phrase it, you have to be like twice as good to even be acknowledged as existing, much less be taken seriously. And it's yeah. completely unfair. Like, I mean, you've seen how many macho dicks are in creature effects or in the hardcore music scene and stuff. When it comes to the genuineness of what you've done in your career, all of these genres, again, it's very exclusionary and, and you know, to a fault at times, but also it's kind of good because it breeds like, you know, interest and a vested audience. But they can read an insincere person like pro wrestling. Look at that Enzo Amore guy. 
he was a, a mouthpiece who wanted to become famous and happened to do it in pro wrestling. And look where his career went, right? People can smell out that insincerity. So when it comes to you guys to be embraced by so many subgenres, like, is that like just a huge thrill? Like that, and I feel like that's a hall of fame just in and of itself that nobody's like, nah, Guar's a fraud. Their comic books are frauds. Hey, man, I, I do it because it's what I'm driven to do. Oh. And that's the reason that I called the company that I first founded the slave pit is because I'm a slave to my art. There you go. And I'm ready and willing to put the chains on and work as hard as it takes to make it happen. And But at the same time, the sad part is that you have to face the reality that in, that's probably how much money I'm going to end up making in my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you, but, you talked openly about that, like not doing commercial art. And I think that's one of the huge things with anybody who wants to be artistic. Now, the shill game, the Instagram game, that is so much of what people are doing that that's probably 80% compared to the 20% of the art you get to do. And so, yeah, you know, you're making less, but you're making your work. Uh, you're not making a product for one person or the lowest common denominator, right? Yeah. And and wow, the, what a difference the, the whole internet thing has made. Yeah. And uh, like, please check out my website, House of Huntar, because you can see a lot of the different weird projects that I'm working on. And it also has links to videos of things like my wrestling matches and some other funny videos and stuff that I've made. And I'm hoping to make more of them. But and, yeah, uh, with us. Boom. Yeah, yeah, well, like I like I said too about uh, the House of Hunter. You know, you got your hot sauce. You can buy uh, Hunter's Techno Destructo sauce, which is uh, pretty good. I still got some in the fridge. And you uh, also have my bottle, you son of a bitch. So don't yes, crack that to, open. I'll crack you in the off. face. You remember well, when you, you haven't things? given it back, given it to him yet? No, I've just been well this weekend for sure, right? Yeah, well, it's already the weekend, right? <laughs> I, I know. I, I'm shame, shame, double shame. But well, this kid's to... been put to work doing slave labor for fifty projects. We've we were talking about it. Like Doug could be the entire Screen Actors Guild with how busy he's been the last couple of months. So I'm pretty stoked for him. Well, after Alien Danger, I've been doing two other features after that. So it's it's. But it's going better now. I still, uh, I still think the Alien Danger one is probably the most fun I've had. So, yeah, that, that was, was really a lot of. And then the other thing too, it, it was, yeah, he's got to do pickup shots soon too. But since we have you on here being interviewed, one thing I'd like to say too is that uh, Hunter introduced introduced me to Phallus in Wonderland and Skullhead Face, and those are Guar movies. They're about an hour long. Yeah, and it's just there's so much creativity. There's so much puppetry work, costume, like it. They're great, and they're really like kind of undiscovered right now. So what we're tr talking about doing is uh, Slasher's podcast is trying to push um, a screening for Skullhead Face uh, over at the Frida Cinema in Santa Ana. So we're, we're pushing with that and uh, making a, you know, a little, uh, you could bring in your art stuff, you know, make a little galleria and we'll screen Skullhead Face because Phallus in Wonderland is streaming on Amazon, which, you know, you could rent to buy, but so someone's owned the rights, but Skullhead Face is kind of in limbo right now. So we're trying to, figure out all the boring cross the dots and the eyes and uh, cross the T's and speaking to whoever we have to, but no, those are, those are great. And Hunter, you even played uh, one of my favorite characters and there is Grambo, the yeah. uh, morality squad granny. Let me ask you, Hunter, is it exhausting to think of the group think creative process and who owns what has that been a detriment to you creatively or has it, you know, been a moderate success when it comes to divvying who gets credit and all that? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Because uh, 
And, you know, I try not to worry about it too much because uh, it's one of those things. It's not a whole lot I can do about it, you know, and I've actually had people, you know, look up some of these, some of the gore things that I know that I even directed and they'll go, oh, you, your name's not even mentioned on this, you know, and such is the politics behind Guar, you know, but all I can say is I'm really proud of all the work that I did with them. Yeah. You know, it's out there and I'm still going to keep doing as much new crazy stuff as I can. And I'm really excited about this show that you're planning on doing to show Skullhead face to a lot of people. I think that's going to be really cool. And I think that we can make a really fun event of it. I'll be there and have a, a booth. I think Dan- I talked to Danielle recently and she was saying she might even be interested in participating in it in some capacity. Oh, great. Which would be really fun. So I think it could be really cool. And we were also talking about expanding and maybe even bringing some original art. Like when I, I do, I try to do art gallery shows whenever I'm presented with the opportunity. Yeah. And uh, which is a funny thing about me because I don't, even though I get a lot of shit done, I don't really seek things out that much. But if I get an opportunity to do an art gallery show, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, if somebody comes up and says, hey, we want you to wrestle at our thing, I'll do it, you know, like that. So uh, anything that comes down the pike, just like James Balsamo asked me, hey, you want to help me make uh, crazy monsters for my weird movie? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you're DTF, you know, you're down to fuck or, or down for whatever, or however you want to say it. But I mean, that kind of attitude is like how Doug got on the show. I mean, how I've hosted stuff in the past. I mean, just being willing and also in the 21st century, being a guy who shows up or a girl who shows up is so huge because think of all the I mean, you know this, especially because you've been in music, how you couldn't fucking give tickets away to some shows. You know, much less pre-sale, much less all the bullshits and politics and people promising this and promising that and never shooting. Being a person who shows up, you are instantaneously the most valuable person in the room. Yeah, man. And, and I, I feel so bad for uh, the wrestling promoters. It's much harder to promote a wrestling show than it is to promote a rock and roll show. Fuck yeah. You know, and and even worse than that is the talent, man, the because these guys could, every time that you get in the ring, it's possible that you could get an injury. I've broken my wrist before, you know, and that cost me, boot. you know, that put my wrestling career in the hole for like years. Yeah. You know, it took me years for me to make back the money that I had to pay for my broken wrist. You know? mm. It's crazy. And, yeah. Also, and that's a like- mild injury. You know, plenty of guys like suffer debilitating shit, you know, or guys that jump into it and think that it's okay for people to hit them in the head with chairs and stuff and think that it, that they won't get brain damage eventually. Yeah, kid. You know, it's a weird thing. Wrestling Always catches is a up really with you. Weird thing. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it's really, it's hard to, for people to make a living at it. It really well, and is. It's tough because your audience, so many people are almost like apologists, right? Who they're like, it's almost like when you have some really fringe horror film, you know, and people are like, oh, well, you know, I, I, you know, it's, I, it's fun or whatever. They come up with excuses instead of just owning it. But it, nobody does that for like rock and roll, right? I've never seen somebody apologize for liking war, but I've totally seen people apologize for even loving like face value yeah. pro wrestling. It's such a sad <laughs> thing. Like, just fucking own it. Like, 
if you're going to spend money on it, like at least be proud that you did, dork. It is the funnest thing ever. And one of the mo- one of the most hilarious things to me about professional wrestling is that as much as women stay- talk about how much they don't aren't into it and don't like it, dude, if you take a girl to a wrestling show, she is going to be like super fucking horny. <laughs> I promise you. Dude, in, in no uncertain terms, every woman I've ever taken to a pro wrestling show has loved it, despite themselves. You know, where it's just like, this isn't my thing. This is silly. This is base level. And dude, I'll never forget. I was uh, I was a young man. I was watching the thing, and The Rock does the tongue thing, the smell. And I, that lady was fucking squirting in her seat oh, watching yeah. that man's tongue. There's some substance to what you said. Yeah, yeah. And it's really funny. You know, one of the funnest parts about going to the wrestling show live is just seeing the crowd. Oh, dude. Like, people I watching when I was the a little boy. When I was a little boy, my dad used to take me. And it was a whole different experience because it wasn't in like a Coliseum kind of a building at all. It was just a warehouse building. Yeah. And or it was full of smoke, you know, and yeah. all kinds of scary, dangerous people that made me like hug my dad's leg, you know, when I was a little kid. But later on, when I would go, it was so funny to see, for instance, some of these like teenage redneck chicks just get so excited when Ric Flair would come out, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, Oh, my God. Kiss, stealing, wheeling, dealing. It was fun, man. We used to have a lot of fun going to see wrestling, (laughs) for sure. So let's say you get one... One main event. I'm not saying you have to pick a favorite. What's your dream main event? Living, dead, whichever wrestler could exist. All right. One day, Techno Destructo is going to fight King Kong. Yes. That's what I want. I am so that's into I, this. That's what I want to do. That's that's one of the things on my list to do. Yeah, the, the no, giant no, gorilla. No. Don't you have a video like that on your YouTube where you're fighting? I think it's a Bigfoot. You're... you're no, that's a yeah, that's a Bigfoot. I, I built that Bigfoot for Brian Kendrick, and then okay. he allowed me to uh, use it to make a short, which is called Bigfoot Tamed by Cajun Gator Hunter. <laughs> if you want to look it up on uh, online, and it's on my on it's on the House of Huntar YouTube page, which you should definitely check out and subscribe to you dumb fucks. Just click the subscribe <laughs> and the bell icon. It's not that hard. But I've got a lot of funny. Cool, crazy stuff I still want to do. Tell us about and, the board uh, game. What? You said oh, something? your board game. Did, uh, weren't you trying to get the, the Gore board game uh, started, like the miniatures and everything? Or, oh, we already did that. I already did that. Doug, you, you are, betrayed me. I thought oh, that this, that's right. I'm editing this out so I don't look like I was ill-prepared. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> My misunderstandings. Because, okay, so that, well, the board game's probably rare now, I take it then, right? It wasn't. Yeah, a lot of people are excited about it and collecting it still and stuff. But uh, it is kind of hard to get a hold of. It is. The, the company that was putting it out collapsed and stuff, devoured its own. It was like a snake devouring its own tail until it disappeared. Oh, geez. <laughs> Uh, well, there, there's still plenty of room, I think. Definitely, if the, the, the fans clamor and crowd for it enough, that uh, the Gore comic, like maybe like a graphic novel or something, because I feel like Gore would fit so perfectly with like you know, uh, the he- heavy metal type universe. Like, I think we were talking about something like that. I can't. I know what we were talking about. So one of the one of the projects on the horizon with Gore, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do a reunion tour with Gore 
is to promote the idea of uh, a compilation book that I want to put out that's like has all of the artwork I've ever Ooh. done for Gore in it. That's awesome. You know? And in one collected in one volume. And at this point, it's something like uh, I think it's like 196 pages or something, 186 or something like that. And uh, but it's got all the comics I ever did, war comics. That's the bulk of it. But it also has a lot of stuff like storyboards for Guar videos, T-shirt designs, and different kinds of art like that. And as well as I used to do this fan club newsletter called Mind Control Monthly that I tried to put it out every month, but it didn't, depending on how much we were on the road or whatever, I just got it out whenever I could. Yeah. And it had tour dates and all kinds of stuff. And I tried to have each issue be dedicated to a different character in the Guar universe, whether it was a good guy or a bad guy. And uh we'd have lots of pictures of them, photographs and and artwork done by the I would try to electric cattle broad all the artists and try to get them to do artwork of the different characters and stuff and get people get the musicians to write letters to their fans, you know, and put them in there and stuff. It was really fun. So okay. there's lots of graphic shit that I did for Guar over the years. And I want to put it all together in one big fat compilation book but uh it's in the works right now it's coming close to being finished but i have no idea how or where we're going to publish it yet at this point but it's going to come out sooner or later you want a good deep cut buddy doug you sent me a picture of your studio today can you hold up your beavis and butthead oh maybe oh yeah let's get so this is oh we gotta get these guys involved because this is our uh-huh. beavis and butthead yeah and and funny thing is i i told i told hunter too when I first got introduced to Guar, it was through the Sega Genesis video game. Because of the Guar tickets. Yeah, Sleazy P. Martini's even an enemy in the game. There you go. It doesn't like, like, I remember that. I'm like, man, that's my first introduction to Guar. And then you were saying, too, that you guys worked on some of the artwork designs for the game cells, right? Or the uh, pixel Yeah, art. I got to do the the animation for the part where they finally see Guar in the end and Guar's dancing around on stage. So I did the artwork for that part. And uh, send it into them, and then they adapted it into the video system and all that stuff. So that's that amazing. Kind of so yeah, over the years, I got I actually got to do a bunch of different really cool animation projects and all that as well. So that's the fun thing about War is I've I've been able to through this one project, I've been able to explore every different kind of medium known to man. You know, I've done animation and been able to do artwork. I've been able to build 3D stuff and make costumes and props, you know, and and perform on stage, you know, and be a rock star and be a wrestler and all of that shit. You know, it's been Crazy. it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, see, so just follow your gut instinct for all you viewers out there. Like just if you really have a passion, just keep through with it, you know, no matter what, because you're making something people are gonna get older, turn into dust. And you know, what's left behind? Well, this one here, it's like, you got, you made kind of a legacy, you know, not kind of, it is it's, it's for people years and years. And that's why I'm really hoping Skullhead face and Phallus and Wonderland are showing again. Cause there's so much creativity behind those films and that's an hour. So just imagine like a full feature, like an hour and a half. I imagine it being like, you know, heavy metal meets like guar. Like if, if you guys were ever to make like an animated movie. We so. did a bunch of those. We did a we did a bunch of those full length movie kind of things that they're sort of like a musical where even though there's a plot line that that takes over the whole hour of the thing, there's oh, yeah. three or four music videos inside the movie. 
well, Skullhead face is like a fucking rock opera when I was watching. I'm like, man, there's just it's it's great. Like, I think that because Phallus in Wonderland and all those other ones, they had like music interruptions, like where it just kind of goes and it's like a music video. But no, Skullhead face was a musical. Like, seriously, yeah, characters just break out in song and dance. Yeah. Yeah. And but I'll tell you, my very favorite one that I worked on was uh, Rendezvous with Ragnarok. Mm. And the reason I like that one the most is that. It's pretty much the closest to the original Scumdogs of the Universe movie idea, where it's sort of Guar fighting against these holy warriors from outer space that come to Earth to judge us, you know, and have decided that Earth must be destroyed and Guar is the only thing standing in between Earth and ultimate destruction. Oh, my God. So that's what the story of Rendezvous with Ragnarok is about. And uh, a lot of it is live because... The funny thing about it, too, is at the time, the guy that plays Sleazy P. Martini, whose real name is Don Draculich, believe it or not, that's his Get real name. Get the fuck out of here. Why would you use his sage name? And his and Chuck Varga, who plays this executioner, the two of them, as we were touring around, and this was when, uh, what was the name of that show uh, about the aliens? Uh, oh, man. The UFO Investigators. Third uh, Rock from, oh, oh, X-Files, right? X-Files. This was 97, yeah? Yeah. So it was around that time period, as we were touring around the country, they would seek out these little conspiracy theory bookstores that would sell lots of UFO magazines and stuff, and they would start collecting all this stuff, you know? And some of it was so fucking out there. It was really funny. And so we decided to put the alien, the gray aliens, into the Guar show. You know, and so what happens in the story is the gray aliens want to uh, they they actually take a sperm sample from odorous urungus live in front of the audience and then artificially inseminate slime menstrual with it on stage. And then she comes out and delivers the baby. All this happens in the course of one gua show, you know, and that's not even that's not even you know, the whole show. That's only part of what happens in the course of the show. So anyway, so I, I, I had the live footage to work with mostly, but in order to communicate the story, I like had uh, each one of the band members uh, I interviewed them. <laughs> so they're like, like the office. Right. So I interviewed them and I, I like grilled them about questions, asked them questions about the plot line of the story, which knowing that they only, you know, have a, semi-limited understanding of it even though they lived it every night on stage you know what's just them making the donuts right like it's their nine to five it's so funny how people could treat these amazing things as mundane right right and so they're trying to explain to the audience of what what's happening in the plot line you know so i kept coming back to guar and they're sort of like narrating the story as it, it went along and it made it really fun it made it really fun. And then I had one character who's like the uh, paranormal investigator who he sent to the Guar show to find out what it's all about, you know? And so he's in the bar and he's like getting drunk because he can't believe all of the super fucked up shit that he just saw, you know? And it's pretty funny. It's Hell pretty yeah. Funny. But that one's called Rendezvous with Ragnarok. It's available online. I won't say where. Huh? Oh, you there's there's it's streaming online. But you can also buy DVDs on Amazon. So just I didn't want to plug Jeff Bezos because that buttfucker's up in outer space or something while the rest of us are sweating on our garages. For real. Motherfucker. For real. But what 
the main thing that I think fans should do is pester Metal Blade, pester Guar that you want these old video products. Hell yeah. You know? The fact that there's not a Blu-ray of all of it just blows my fucking mind. Crazy. Yeah, because there was one a few years ago. They put out a box set that was all of the seven different ones that I worked on in one box set. And it was available like maybe 15 years ago and sold out. And now it's available for like an outrageous, crazy price. Mm-hmm. You know, so why don't they just put it out again? Keep, yeah. Keep asking. Um, well, that's what I'm hoping this uh, this Frida Cinema screening opens more eyes. Uh, you know, maybe we can invite the massacre video of the Severin or Vinegar Syndrome guys out there because they're local. So. Who knows? Maybe they can pick it up and find the original elements to it and restore it. <laughs> yeah, and you never know. James Balsamo has such a is such a great like movie producer and stuff. Maybe I could get him to produce some kind of a techno destructo or guar project. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh Fuck yeah! Well, yeah hey, there you go. We've got everything already lined up, so it's like, why not? You know, it's you own that character, so might as well. So. Uh... Or is that is that sketchy territory there? I don't I don't know how that works actually. I don't know if certain people holding the reins of Guar would totally agree with that. Mm. But the main thing is that when people talk about me and what I'm doing, eventually they're going to be talking about Guar. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here talking shit about Guar, and I'm not going to talk shit about Guar. Yeah. And so therefore, uh. Even though this whole interview is about me, it's also going to promote Guar as well. So that's the reason that they don't shut me down is because I um, don't talk shit about them. And uh, when when people see me, they think of Guar. So well, it's also it's okay. fortunate to think that like this, pro- like this, it's kind of beautiful that you've had this amazing career path. Them and granted, it's twenty years in the rear view predominantly. Obviously, there's the reconciliation and everything now. But like to have a time capsule of shit that you worked on, dude. I don't have anything from any of my old bands. I have some shitty EPs that we never sold, and that's it. I have like two shirts. Versus you have like a rich tapestry. You have a book that you could make. Like that's so unique. You ask any dumb fuck. The best thing they could tell you about their 20s is like oh, some fleeting memories of a house party where they might have gotten laid. That's probably the best. Like I feel like so many people live like the Al Bundy Polk High School versus you get to be like, oh, no, here is my credentials here. Everything is tangible and you can see it and it's delightful and amazing. And it's all recent too. Like, for example, like, man, you took a beating on that wrestling rink when we were doing that the the, the wrestling scenes with Techno. I'm like, man, that, that and, and in fact, Ghostbusters, the proton, that thing's like probably the same size as those proton packs, your backpack there. So fuck. Yeah, still lugging that around. Thing, the other funny thing about that too is like we were talking about uh the monster arms getting waterlogged and mm-hmm. stuff. Well, I had fallen into the swimming pool too while we were shooting that scene. And even though as soon as I noticed my backpack was in the water, I yanked it right out. It soaked up a hell of a lot of water. So when we did the actual wrestling scenes in Alien Danger, and I was with the Barbarian and the Warlord, who were like my idols from millions of years ago, I like my armor was so soaked with water that it was heavy as shit, and I couldn't even perform like I normally would be able to. And man, I don't think I left him with a very good impression. <laughs> no, I thought I thought it was great. Granted, I couldn't really see what I was doing because I was in that mask, but I think I thought it was great. Like it was the 
it was heavy enough. It made it believable that it was a fucking pack. So yeah, it was fun. We had a good time. It was we had a really good time. It was fun. And I can't I'm hoping that uh James was talking about letting me take the uh soundtrack, not the not the soundtrack. I'm thinking about the theme song music. The mm-hmm. theme song of Alien Danger was written by this band called the Toy Dolls, who is a really cool punk rock band from back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to putting together some kind of uh Alien Danger promo video using uh Techno Destructo's fight scenes from the movie and editing them to the super awesome Alien Danger theme song, which yeah. is really hey. a cool song. And we, and we could film that stuff too. We got the cameras and the lights and, you know, because we still want to film like, like the, uh, the techno destructo portion in costumes and everything. Like you said, you had your, was it uncle Sam outfit too? I think that would be kind of funny to you. So yeah, we find just yeah, random stuff the, to do. One of the things that I made just for fun, especially since the whole political situation has been so volatile over the last years, I made this uncle Sam costume. That's really funny. It has like, about a two foot tall hat. And then it also has about two foot tall stilt boots. So when I wear it, I'm like 10 feet tall. Hell yeah. And it's pretty funny. And I would stomp around on 4th of July just for fun. I got like really super drunk and was stomping around in the park, screaming for people to, uh, if you dig America, say fuck yeah. I was trying to get people to, to scream fuck yeah. <laughs> And, well, I'm sure it worked, right? Did you? Were, I also had I had a flag too. When I play this character, I have a flag that is like a three by four American flag. But you know how the bottom stripe on the American flag is a red is red. So I took uh, in white letters as big as I can possibly fit them on the stripe, made in China. Nice. And so when I come when I'm there, I like start waving the flag around, and if anybody says anything about made in China. I pretend like I'm noticing it for the first time. Oh, wow. <laughs> shape about it. It's pretty funny. Hell yeah, dude. Well, we've got a bunch of fun stuff we're going to be working with you on in the future. Uh, we plug House of Huntar. Anything else that you want to plug before we let you go for today? Uh, not really. Just look up the website. Look up houseofhuntar.com and check out all the crazy stuff I've been working on and support the arts by buying my cool new Techno Destructo t-shirt. And hot sauce. And the hot sauce is good too. And I'm fully stocked on it. I also have these. Hell too. yeah. These are like these are like foam rubber wrenches. And they're perfect for like taking to wrestling shows. And like they're great for beating your girlfriends and your kids. Yes. Or like doesn't leave a mark. Even the random stranger next to you at the wrestling show. Seriously. You know? But uh yeah, so I have these for sale too. That's awesome. Yeah. And for those of you not seeing and just listening, uh, it's like a foam finger, but it's a wrench and it says techno on it, which is badass. I actually hadn't seen those. Well, right on. Well, buddy, thank you for your time. Goodbye and good die. Thank you for supporting the arts. And that was our talk with Huntar. I always want to say like Huntar the Barbarian or something, but it's it's Huntar. Hunter, he's great. Doug, you had the pleasure of working with him quite a few times at this point, right? I did. Yes, yeah. so I worked with him on Alien Danger Two, and w- w- the crazy thing was, I was w- that movie was a two week shoot, but I was working with him two or no three weeks in advance because uh, he w- he did all the uh, the props and the costumes for the aliens. So basically, if you guys are big fans of Guar. And when you, when you watch that movie, he, he, he basically butter, buttered them all up. I was there latexing the colors and mixing the colors, but he's the one that kind of constructed it all. 
And uh, yeah, it was just him and I in, in James Balsamo's backyard making these monster outfits, which, uh, you know, came out cool. And it's yeah, it was kind of cool to, to work with him. I heard a lot of stories and a lot of crazy stuff. And yeah, it's just very fun. Hunter's an awesome guy. And uh, we're going to be shooting some video with him soon. So we'll be promoting, you know, Slasher's podcast, B-Movie TV with him. And uh, with all these uh, classic costumes, and if, you, if you've ever seen, um, you know, Guar's movies like Phallus in Wonderland or um, uh, Skullhead Face, Hunter was the one that designed all those. And he even plays uh, one of my favorite characters, Edna P. Grambo, the morality squad grandma with a shotgun and a wheelchair of death that tries to kill Guar. It's great. Well, there we go. Now, Doug, let's say people are like, hey, God damn it, I want more Doug in my life. How do they defectuate that? Well, after I'm Ray Fried Gun with a skeleton and my corpse is a red uh, or green skeleton, you can go to B-Movie TV on Roku. Uh, I host a show Friday Night Action at 8 p.m. It's free, so download it. We got a new movie playing uh, every Friday right now. I just got 10 more movies in, so I'm starting to do action B-Movie Westerns. So, hey, yeah, if you guys are into some B-Movie Westerns of the day, uh, yeah, tune in. Jake's also got a show, too. Saturday Night Tears. Good stuff. Hell yeah. I'm actually a big fan of Westerns, too. So that that's actually very exciting to me. And there's uh, so many schlock Westerns. I had act- I, I've been doing this thing where I message Ken Ace Brewer, our producer over at B-Movie TV. And I'm like, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And he's like, look, I've looked into all this. Shut the fuck up. But <laughs> I, I can't I can't blame him because it's exhausting because there's so many things with licensing rights and everything. But there are so many just bizarre fucking movies out there. And that's one of the great things I love about you know this show. The only way that it's really viable is if we do a little bit less niche stuff, right? Because it's not a visual narrative. But what's great about B-Movie TV, we get to show it to you. So it's not like we're talking about something that excludes you or makes you have to go do homework. You get to watch it with us and get a little bumper on either end. So highly recommend getting everything on Roku. Highly also recommend buying our friend Adrian Santiago's butt-fucking book, Last Call, A Toxic Love Story. I've read it. I've embarrassed her publicly by reading it on episodes. Doug, shall I read another excerpt? Yeah, read another excerpt. Let me let me let me hear the cheese. I need to hear some gossip. My mouth hangs open. You're joking. Nope, she tells me. Thank God, though, he's not coming. Are all men this stupid or is it just the ones we pick? Spoiler, all men are that stupid. Uh oh, yeah, there you go. There's a spoiler alert. So all you people out there on the dating apps, be prepared, be very prepared. But I will give you guys another uh, heads out. So this episode, if you guys are in town, um, there is a midsummer event. So that's going to be at the Pasadena Convention Center. You can meet uh, me and Jake there. We'll be at the B-Movie TV booth. We'll be hawking slashers, pod merchandise. Gross House 1 and 2 just got re-released on DVD um, from B-Movie TV. So we're going to be getting, we'll be selling those DVDs there. We'll see who else kind of pops up. It's all just kind of uh, on the spurt as it goes. And uh, uh, Ken Ace Brewer is actually releasing his first film that he bought the rights to. And the director just recently died two weeks ago. Ooh. So, we, yeah, it's it, the movie is called Even Hitler Had a Girlfriend. Oh, I thought it was Hard uh, Rock Zombies. Is that uh, cool? I'm- well, he's still he's trying to get a, a better source material. He he owns the rights for three years on, on Hard Rock Zombies, which is a great movie, by the way. But yeah, so so when you go to the, if you're at the convention or if not, we'll send you a link. But uh, even Hitler had a girlfriend, a great underrated lost movie uh, that's was filmed in the 90s and kind of resurfaced now. Uh, director Ronnie Kramer, you know, this will this will be his uh, 
parting gift for us because it is hilarious. And like I said, my two favorite characters in Mars Attacks are the alcoholic and uh, the sleazy casino owner. And if you like that type of character and humor, then you'll love even Hitler had a girlfriend. Which also, if I'm not mistaken, Andrew Jackson Jihad did a song of the same name. Yeah. So when you Google it, usually the song pops up first because the movie is just so it was released on tape. But what Ronnie Kramer did, he released it by himself. So he'd make copies of it, make his own covers, and then go to video stores and try to sell the video stores the movie. So Could it's you imagine very, very... being a fucking dumbass clerk at a video rental store and somebody brings in, he's like, hey, I made this movie. You should buy it from me. It's called Even Hitler Had a Girlfriend. I made this at home on my VCR. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I love it, though. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what they did. Movies like Black Devil Doll from Hell, Tales from the Quad Dead Zone, The Abomination. All those movies were like shopped around to local local stores. And that's why the tapes are so rare. I love it. All right. Uh, I'll shamelessly plug our Redbubble, Redbubble Slashers Pod, blah, blah, blah. Two new shirts out this month, one of which is Mars Attacks theme. So hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. Uh, we just did a watch party. So we're going to be trying to do that quarterly. So we have Patreon. We have coffee or, or KO-FI. We mm. have buy me a cup of coffee. There's all sorts of ways to support us monetarily. Great way to support us, though, is just leaving a review, sharing with your dumb friends, doing all that stuff. So if you can do that, I'd be eternally grateful. I'll tickle your butthole metaphorically or astrally. I will project myself across the ether to do the tickle tickle buns. And that's all. Doug, this was your episode. So you get to send us home. All right, I'm going to send you guys home. Uh, make sure you get your perfect Ray Fry gun, fry your family, uh, bring their severed heads in, and make sure you show their IDs to show that it really is your parents that you killed with their Ray Fry gun out here. Oh, and uh, go ahead and go wax your carrot. I forgot to mention waxing the carrot on this episode. So there you go. Wait, I said it. All right, and that is Doug signing out, and that is Jake signing out. We're going to go blow up Mars. Let's go invade Mars and just be dicks. Elon Musk and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the other guy, the bald Amazon guy Jeff is doing Bezos? it too. Let's just make sure they land on the planet surface first and then blow it up. Well, we'll go tell them to land on the sun. How about that? What is up, goons? It is your favorite computer-generated trash-talking machine, CyberSlash 1000 with another hidden track. This week's track is by Thurden. If you have ever wondered why I have not been institutionalized or incarcerated, it's because this music calms me down, which is weird because it is also oddly thrilling and empowering. I am a really big fan. This is my favorite track, The Voyage, off their record, Men Here. Be sure to follow with the links in the description as development is running rampant on their next record, which I have been assured will not be called Men Here 2. <laughs>